meanwhile, I was at home suffering from the uh, Omicron. It was mainly a headache. The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Eye Den, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 100 of the Squawk Eye Den podcast, recorded on Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. From Studio 317 at the Holiday Inn Resort, Pensacola Beach, Florida. Today's flight, Rob D and I discuss wind shear on final and heavy crosswinds, high altitude go-arounds, the 5G effect on 121 operators, and we take a very special look back to some of our favorite moments from the past 99 shows of the Squawk Ident podcast. So stay with us as we complete our pre-flight for Flight 100. Before we push off the gate today, we wanted to say congratulations to a young pilot who now holds the record as the youngest female pilot to fly solo around the world. Congratulations to Zara Rutherford and her team who made this adventure possible. For those that haven't heard us talk about Zara before, uh, we've been following her progress that she's started on this adventure back in August of 2021. And there's going to be a link in the show notes from a Washington Post article by Claire Parker and stated January 21st. From that article, the 19-year-old British-Belgian aviator used her gap year after high school to break two, not one, but two Guinness World Records, becoming the first woman to circumnavigate the globe in a micro-light aircraft and the youngest woman to make such a journey. American pilot Shaista Wise, the previous record holder, was 30 when she flew around the world in 2017. The youngest male record holder, Travis Ludlow, completed his solo flight around the world in July at the age of 18. When Rutherford set out on her flight, she aimed to, quote, Reduce the gap from 11 years to 11 months, she wrote on her website. At first, it wasn't a, a sense of adventure. I wanted to do something, something crazy that would change my life. And then I realized that, you know, I would maybe get a bit more media attention than I thought I would get. So I thought I'm going to try and use that and, and try and hopefully encourage girls to go into aviation and STEM. So that's like in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. When she landed her Shark UL plane at Kurtrevik, Wevelenglum, God, I'm sure I butchered that, I'm sorry, <laughs> airport in Western Belgium after five months, Rutherford opened the cockpit. She stood up to greet the cheering crowd with her arms held high and a grin on her face. And she said, I made it. <laughs> so she's the daughter of two uh, pilots. Uh, she grew up around airplanes, started training for her pilot's license in high school. She had always dreamt about flying around the world, but thought it would be impossible. At least that's what she told the Washington Post. Uh, more on the article uh, in the show notes again, but yeah, congratulations, Sarah. Absolutely inspiring. 
now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 100 of the Squawk Ident podcast is officially underway. Well, joining us today is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident podcast co-host. He is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. Recovering from his second round of the post-triple vaccination COVID-19 infections and high atop his castle from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help us in welcoming our very own Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? Hey, what's up, Tony? I'm doing a lot better this week. Uh, yeah, definitely recovering from the um, latest variant of the COVID-19, I guess, Omicron or whatever they call it. Megatron. Um, but I'm back. I'm healthy <laughs> and um, very excited to be here for the, uh, you know, this is a momentous milestone for you and the Squawk Ident um, podcast, you know, show 100. Uh, it takes a while to get to this point and you know, here we yeah. are. Uh, we should raise our hands like Zara did. And we did it. Say, hey, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. And it, and it's a, it's definitely a joint effort. You know, thanks to you and Roger and Kyle uh, for for all the wonderful uh, just help and and feedback and just participating and in the conversation with me every week. It's 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 great. Um, and I know I say every week because in, in the beginning. It was a weekly thing, and now it's more like a couple yeah. times a month. Uh, and that's just because the schedules have been so crazy for all of us. Uh, even scheduling have. this uh, was momentous <laughs> because we were, yeah. uh, you know, I wanted to have everybody it's here. It's like herding cats. Yeah, it? <laughs> it really is. You know, I wanted to have everybody here, but, you know, obviously uh, schedules have been just absolutely busy. Um, with yeah. yeah, that's good. I mean, we're all uh, busy. You know, we all have families and, you know, we're trying to get, make everything work. And, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just hard to, you know, fit in a couple hours to uh, sit down and do the podcast because we're just, you know, we're, we're spread thin as it is with our work schedule. So yeah, yeah it's tough to get everybody together. Yeah, speaking of family, I see you've been doing some more volleyball uh, tournaments. Oh, oh man. man. <laughs> it's, it's never ending, man. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, um, I fell ill uh, at the same time that my daughters had a volleyball tournament in San Antonio. So uh, my wife, the trooper she is, you know, she she got the kids in the car and she drove down to San Antonio, which is about a five hour drive here from from the Dallas area. And uh, so they drove down there and and spent the weekend on the volleyball courts. And, you know, she's trying to uh, divide her. Uh, attention between the two two teams the two girls and um and then socialize afterwards and she came back and she was just exhausted i bet i mean she <laughs> i could i i'm exhausted just you know helping her out doing it with her and uh she did it you know basically with both kids yeah. so wow you know hands off to her <laughs> hats off to her she <laughs> she did a great yeah. job um but meanwhile i was at home suffering from the uh omnicron which i mean i don't know if they can really tell if it's omnicron but i gotta tell you this this round of uh of illness wasn't as bad as it was before 
Um, I had I had been um, diagnosed with uh, or tested for COVID back in December of 2019, mm. and that hit me pretty hard. I mean, I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that, but the symptoms were pretty rough. This time around, um, it it was mainly a headache that uh, that was the more you know prominent symptom, um, followed by the cough and congestion, and the, but that was pretty light. Um, energy level wasn't as, wasn't as high as it normally is. Um, and we definitely had a little bit of fatigue, but, um, it lasted four days or so yeah. and then started to feel better and went to work the other day and had a good trip, no symptoms, feeling good. Yeah. So back on the, uh, healthy, healthy side of, uh, life. And so were you still able good, to get the here. paid leave from work or, or did you happen to have those yeah. days off? Yeah, I, I I had a uh, one trip that interfered with, um, or one trip that you know I had to fly was supposed to fly, so the the uh, the illness they had to remove me from that trip. So mm -hmm. um, got four days off for that trip and added another six days because I think it's ten days that they have to give you off, so so you don't spread it. So I was off for ten days. Yeah. And when did you come fact, down the with the day. symptoms? Was it like days after you were flying before? Yeah. So I remember the first symptoms started. So what are we here? Yeah. I think the first symptoms started about, I got to look at my calendar here. First symptoms started on the 10th. So I think we did our podcast, what, on the 6th? Yeah. Of January. Uh -huh. Yeah. So the, the first symptom was the 10th. And we had a volleyball tournament the weekend of the eighth and the ninth. And I remember sitting next to a friend of mine at the volleyball tournament, which a friend of mine, we socialize all the time at the, at, at these tournaments and he's a doctor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, on Monday he sent me a text message saying, ah, he didn't feel too well. And he tested himself and he, he was tested positive mm -hmm. for, uh, for COVID. So he's like, just, you know, watch your symptoms. If you feel ill, you yeah. know, get tested. So coincidentally enough on Monday night, I had, you know, it wasn't feeling too well. I had the headache and I was already at a layover in, um, I think it was Austin. And, uh, the next morning when I woke up, still had a little bit of a headache and started to develop a little bit of a cough. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had, we had one flight to Dallas and they were supposed to sit like three hours and then go to El Paso. So when I got to Dallas, I just went and checked in with the chief pilot office and said, Hey, I'm going to go home sick. I think I got, you know, <laughs> I think I got COVID. So they're like, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, remove you from the trip and, you know, just call us if you, when you get tested. Yeah. So I went immediately and got tested on the way home and sure enough, I tested positive. Yeah. And how does that work? Does so, the chief pilot's office handle communicating with everyone you may have come in contact with or. Yeah, that's the primary means. I mean, if, uh, ideally what you should do is if you, if you feel sick, um, you know, call, call the chief pilot office, um, and let them know that you're feeling sick and then, um, you know, go home and get tested. If you're already at home, just go ahead and get tested. If you're, you know, feeling any of the symptoms and if you test positive, call the chief pilot, tell them you tested positive. They're going to ask you to send the uh, positive test results to a, an email address where they they track that stuff, and um, with all that, they'll they'll put in the computer your your removal code, mm -hmm. you know, for pay purposes, and 
attendance and all that stuff to remove you from any of your trips. And they give you 10 days. So it's an automatic 10 days. Um, and then it's pretty much the same thing if you've been exposed to somebody who has tested positive, which technically, I guess I was in that situation um, uh, when I was on that trip because, you know, the, the doctor had exposed me. So um, there's a protocol that you're supposed to follow. And there's actually a flow sheet, um, a flow chart to follow that's on our, our union's website. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice, nicely laid out. It's step-by-step. Step. So if you feel any of the symptoms, go to that website. It tells you, it starts asking you questions where you on a trip, yeah. where you at home, where you, you know, are you positive or we exposed, you know, so it kind of gives you a, 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 a checklist of, of how to go about doing it. And then they, as you reach certain stops, it'll say, okay, call the chief pilot or call, the, you know, pilot on duty or call the union, call the union medical department. So they, they, uh, they kind of set it up for you yeah. and it's really easy to follow. So, yeah, last week, uh, or actually two weeks ago, uh, about well, maybe after you came down with the symptoms, mm -hmm. I remember you texting me, um, and I started getting a, a headache and I thought nothing of it, yep. you know, sinuses this time of year, it's been extremely windy in, in yeah. my neck of the woods. Um, and that, that means a lot of dust, a lot of pollen. Yeah. Um, and I have very severe seasonal allergies that I, that I take regular medication for. Um, so I thought, well, mm -hmm. it's probably that because I didn't have any of the typical symptoms that you have read about or heard about with COVID. Um, I felt fine. I could eat, I could taste, I could smell. I mean, all, all the stuff, no fever, just a little sure. dull headache and some sinus pressure. So I've took sinus medication, you know, um, and that lasted about 24 hours. And then I noticed mm -hmm. the other members of my family started to come down with similar headache kind of mm. thing. And I thought, uh oh, so luckily <laughs> I was home. I was off for, I think, five days. Um, and I mean, the symptoms went away within 24 hours, which is not typical either. But right. the conversation came up once when then you texted me saying, hey, I've got COVID again for the second time and you were telling me the symptoms and the headache and but but you didn't lose any of the other things i thought oh well if rob got it and his symptoms sound like my symptoms i wonder if i got it and i'm triple vaccine yeah. tested tested so yeah what the heck so i called the chief pilot's office in los angeles they said well you can come down to los angeles international airport and get tested at no charge for employees just have to make an appointment at the clinic but that's like an hour and a half drive one way. So I'm like, can I just right. get tested locally somewhere? And she's like, well, you can, you can do the home test. And right now, there's a website. And all you have to do is just Google it. There's a website right now that you can get an at-home test courtesy of the U.S. government. You get two of them per household. Um, all you have mm -hmm. to do is fill out the form, and they'll mail it to your mailbox. Um, but, of course, that's going to take some time. Uh, I took advantage of right. that. I, I sent away for my at-home test as well. Um, but I wanted to get something. And, and at least I wanted to get an antibody test because I was yeah. feeling fine. And I thought, well, if I've, I, I'm pretty sure I don't have it. But if I did have it, I wanted to find out. So I contacted our aeromedical group with our union over at Legacy Airlines. And 
they called me back and they said, yeah, absolutely. You can do what you did last few times for the antibody test. I'll send you the work or the uh, order form from our doctor. And all you got to do is go into your local lab, which is a mile away from my house. And uh, go and <laughs> take, they take a little vial of blood. They do the antibody or antigen test. Uh, and then they get you the results. I got my results within pretty much 24 or 30 hours, something like that. I got yeah. my results back. And it said antigen test positive. And I thought, well, what does this mean? Does this mean I've had COVID? Because there was a note right under it saying that there is no scientific evidence that if you test, an antigen test comes out positive, it's from COVID or from the vaccine. Because right. <laughs> that creates an antibody response. So there's no way of testing to find out where it came from, in other words. So do, right. you have, yeah. do you have the uh, antibody response in your body from getting vaccinated and boosted? Or do you have that response because you've contracted the actual virus? There's no way to know. Right. So yeah. I gave them a call back to go over the results. And of course, they, that's exactly what they told me. So I don't think I've ever had it. However, she says, man, your antibody count or your antigen count is through the roof. She's like, you know, mm. uh, if you're below eight, which is, I, I forget the measurement that they're using, but if you're below eight, that means you do not have antibodies. If you're if above 1,200, then you're considered vaccinated. At 2,500, mm. they stop counting. And mine was greater than 2,500. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, so I can go into a room wow. full of people with COVID and probably not get it. Huh? She's like, well, it doesn't work that way. But <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But those symptoms you described are very similar to, to what I experienced. And it's also, like you said, something that I experience almost seasonally, you know, with the this time of year with the winds and that, you know, I don't know what. I don't know what they call it, like desert sage or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's pollen that's in the air. Yeah. Um, and it, I've been, I've been um, suffering from allergies my whole life. And I actually went and did, got on a program and, and you know, took uh, allergy shots for a number of years, which helped me out tremendously. I mean, it changed my life. I mean, I was, I was going from, uh, you know, being, you know, sitting on the couch, suffering from, you know, allergies not being able to function very well to all of a sudden, you know, I can go out and cut the grass and dust the house and, and get a workout in. And, and, um, and it's great. You know, I mean, I don't have any problems, but I occasionally will still get a little flare up or, or whatever they call it. And so, uh, you know, when that happens now in, in this eight day and age with COVID-19 and Omicron, you know, it's like, well, is it allergies or is it, you know, the, one of the symptoms of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the COVID starting to kick in. Um, and you know, the loss and taste of smell for me, it happened on this, uh, this round oh, too. Okay. Uh, but it, it didn't happen until the later portion of the illness. I mean, I was actually starting to feel much better, but all of a sudden, you know, you, you notice that the coffee doesn't quite taste the same or, or, <laughs> you know, that, 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 uh, pizza that you just ate didn't have the flavor that you were craving. And so, you know, and, you know, so now I do a couple of little, uh, uh, tests to, to make sure that I'm still alive. So, you know, I go sniff a bottle of, of, uh, 
of perfume or cologne and I'm like, oh, I can't smell that anymore. Or, you know, take a, a sniff of bleach or something like that. I'm like, oh, I can't smell that either. I don't recommend okay, that, ladies so and gentlemen. Do not sniff bleach. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just you got to do some tests because, uh, you know, I don't know. It's something just to be aware of because, you know, I live in a house that has gas appliances and, and stuff like that. And, you know, kids sometimes get a little careless around the stove when they're making things and they don't turn turn off the burners properly. And, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, my senses are, uh, if they're affected that I, you know, pay a little closer attention to stuff like yeah. that. So anyway, yeah, well, good. Here well, we are. I'm, alive. I'm glad I'm you're better. Well. Um, you know, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. I think it will help. Uh, uh it just goes to, to show that these symptoms could be extremely mild. Um, my, my aeromedical, uh, doctor that, that called me back, I had a conversation with her. She said that probably um, the reason if you contract COVID or this new Omicron, the reason that people are getting a much more mild case uh, with the symptoms is because most of those people are vaccinated. The, the virus is, yes, a little bit less potent or not potent, yeah. uh, a little less uh, symptoms, like severe symptoms, but it's much more mm -hmm. potent. It's, it's, it's uh, easier to catch. But because you're vaccinated, that's what they're believing uh, is the reason why it's not lasting as long and it's, and it's uh, being a much easier thing to recover from. So, yeah, uh, by all yeah. means, uh, learn to recognize those symptoms, take the appropriate actions, uh, do what you can to isolate if, you, if that's the case until you know. And with these uh, free at-home tests, I mean, there's no reason why you can't pop one of those. I think it's a saliva test. Right. You get the one, one stripe or two stripes, kind of like a pregnancy test. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I believe that the Squawk Ident podcast was on to this a year and a half ago, <laughs> and Roger was making fun of us because he said, "I yeah. think the tech, I think it doesn't work that way, bro." But <laughs> <laughs> well, but here we are. We are. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, I'm so glad that you're feeling better. And you know, Texas, I was in a 30 hour layover last week in Texas. Uh -huh. And the day before, I looked at the weather because I was packing for the trip, and it said 72 degrees. And I thought, yeah. awesome. So it's all, it was right. only a two-day trip. So I packed yeah. like a sweatshirt, but, you know, just a pretty light packing because I only packed for two days. And uh, I get there, and it's 34 degrees. <laughs> and I'm like, what the? I remember that day. Oh, I was, I was in Fort Worth, uh, and I put on everything I had in my suitcase just to go and grab a bite to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But I, yeah. That's it, the weather here is crazy, man. I mean, obviously every there's areas of the country that experience a lot worse weather, yeah. but you know that I remember that day and we've had numerous days like that where it'll be 70, 80 degrees and then a cold front comes in and then you're in the twenties and you're, you know, you're going from shorts to breaking out, you know, the earmuffs and the, <laughs> the gloves, <Yeah. laughs> the scarf and the long johns and everything like that. It's it's uh, pretty crazy. And then the winds kick up. I mean, we're going to talk about that today. And, you know, that it, it, it gets crazy, man. Yep. <laughs> I'll tell you what, dang it, that boy ain't right now because my narrow youth were not. Oh, dang it, piggy. Gosh darn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, wind shear. 
You know, uh, show 100. So excited. Thank you, Rob, for being here. Uh, thank you, all <laughs> you listeners out there as well, for all the support over the last few years. Uh, every year, uh, January 1st marks the beginning of a new season for us. And so this is season four. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, the last show, show 99, highlighted a new introduction song. I make the music, or most of the music, I should say, for the podcast. Uh, occasionally, I put some background music, some royalty-free background music in there when I'm highlighting a story or something. But the introduction and the, and the outro music uh, I made on GarageBand. And this year, uh, for this season, as I'm getting my skill set in the check here, uh, I decided to add some sound bites from some of our favorite aviation films. So at the end of the show, I'll play it uh, again in its entirety, uh, the season four music for the Squawk Ident podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And let me know. Uh, send me some feedback. Uh, let me know what you think. That would be fantastic. But today we're going to talk about wind shear. Why? Because I experienced some pretty bad horizontal wind shear. Now, in your private pilot training, uh, student pilot training, you're, immediately you're going to get into weather systems. And they talk everything about clouds, visibility, uh, lenticular clouds, which you stay away from over mountaintops, right? They talk about uh, vertical wind shear, which is the stuff that happens at critical phase of flight when you're close to the ground and all of a sudden you can have a microburst or downdraft. Uh, wind shear is just a sudden change in direction of wind from one direction to another. So it could be horizontal, it could be vertical, it could be diagonal, it could be anything. Uh, a lot of times with uh, airline and jet traffic, we're dealing with horizontal wind shear over at the related to the jet stream up at high altitudes. Now, this particular instance that happened to me uh, just this last week uh, was a horizontal wind shear at a relatively low altitude. The winds were howling in Southern California last week. We're talking 50 to 80 mile an hour gusts. And yes, my house, the north side of my house has been sandblasted, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> we had... I was going to say a lot of people also uh, in the training world associate wind shear with thunderstorms or microburst activity, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, it could be a, a frontal system moving through, like probably uh, probably the situation that you're talking about now, where you know the it's very strong and you know the iso bars are close together and you, and, you know the pressure gradient's really extreme. So um, yeah, you you can experience. Um, like you said, the change in wind direction or speed, um, and you know, and it changes rapidly, uh, especially descending or climbing through the layers. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So as you go on and tell the story, you know, keep in mind that the this stuff doesn't always happen around a thunderstorm. Um, it, it, I mean, obviously, it happens around the thunderstorm, and that's right. <laughs> that's very important to know that too. But um, you know, like a gust front, um, or not even a gust front, a frontal system yeah. could. Uh, you know, cause this yeah. stuff, which that's what happens around here quite often. Yeah, this time for of sure, year. especially you know out in the plains states, uh, we definitely see a lot yep. of these uh, uh, wind shear events. Sometimes they even—that's how you get uh, tornadoes too. Uh, frontal boundaries that definitely. that are definitely conflicting, yep. a hot air, cold air mixing. Uh, but in this situation, uh, it was the same day I was there in Dallas. It was very cold, and I was wearing everything I could put. You know, put on um, that afternoon or that evening, we we headed back to the airport and we did uh, DFW to Denver, 
which was it was mm. cold, but it wasn't too bad. Then Denver back to DFW, and we swapped airplanes. We had a little bit of a sit, uh, and then DFW to Ontario. And uh, we were looking at the weather before when you're doing your pre-flight. Uh, the typical pre-flight for first officer uh, at Legacy Airlines is you know you get to the airplane. You're going to do a, a kind of a global assessment of the exterior of the aircraft and a detailed pre-flight. On the pre-flight, I didn't find anything wrong with the aircraft. Uh, everything looked good. Got back into the airplane, started to build my nest is, is what they say. You know, so you're, you're in the, your little nest there and you like everything in a certain place. You know, it takes time for a pilot mm -hmm. to, to get their their nest set up the way they like it and once you figure that out it just it's pretty quick to like put my ipad here or put my notes here or put my pen here so you get i got my nest set up and immediately <laughs> i download uh the flight plan the weather the the routing on the jepson charts that i need uh the wsi information and then i start uh, I take, I have a piece of paper. I use scratch paper instead of throwing it away or recycling. I always have a little pocket in my kit bag where I keep all the scratch paper. Most of the time there are old flight plans. Occasionally I'll fly with a captain who likes to still print out a flight plan. And I always say, hey, but don't throw that out when you're done with it. Can I have it? I use it for scratch paper because it's only printed on one side. So that's what I do. Mm. And so I, I write my little notes, you know, and I put, you know, the flight number and all the, all the pertinent information we're going to need for the flight and i'm sitting there and i always check the weather you know, obviously i need the ATIS for where we are so i can program the the uh, flight management system but i also would like to get the weather at our destination so i know what runway they're using and that's what i did right and i looked at it and i can remember there was a pause and i went whoa and the cap was like <laughs> what he goes did you see the winds in Ontario? Zero one zero at three three gust four nine horizontal wind shear. Holy man! Plus or minus forty knot wow. gain and loss on final reported by. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> howling, and I thought, oh god, what's the TAF? Let's look at the the terminal area forecast. So we looked at the TAF, and the TAF indicated it wasn't going to get much better for at least 10 hours and i thought holy crap captain's like uh yeah we might not be landing in ontario today <laughs> i was like i gotta get home i've got an appointment wow. at eight o'clock in the morning this is go home lake and i only brought two days i mean everything yeah. went just spinning right. in my mind and uh yeah so we took off you know we kept a close eye on the weather we were communicating with dispatch periodically it's a relatively short flight so about an, you know, it's about an hour and 20, hour and 30 minute flight. It's not very long, you know, in that direction. With the higher winds, it was a little longer that day. So as we're uh, transitioning from Albuquerque Center to Los Angeles Center, they started telling us, yeah, you know, uh, start looking at alternates because no one has landed in Ontario for over two hours because of the winds. Wow. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm feeling lucky, you know. Tonight's my night. It's going to happen. <laughs> we're to stay positive. Let's not get negative. Right. So we're, we're looking at our alternate. It was not Los Angeles. It was not Palm Springs. Or was it? It was Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> so I send a message to dispatch. I'm like, Cap, do you, do you mind if I ask if we can maybe get Los Angeles? Because 
we can freaking Uber home from there or something. The passengers yeah. can take them. People are landing in probably in LA. Right. Well, <laughs> well, LA winds were strong too, but not not yeah. nearly as strong. And so we we sent a message to dispatch saying, "Hey, can we please put Los Angeles as an alternate?" And they said, "No, uh, Los Angeles is full." Mm. I'm like, what do you mean it's full? It's full. We have no more gate space yeah. at Los Angeles. Everyone has diverted to Los Angeles. So yeah. luck of the draw, you know, because we were the last flight of the night scheduled to land at 11.50 p.m. Uh, that just wasn't going to happen. So we requested speed our discretion. We slowed it way back, giving it time to see what the winds were doing. Developed. And the winds were exceeding our limitation on the aircraft, on the Airbus A321 of 35 knot crosswind. Under dry conditions, 35 is the max. So at this point, every time I was checking the ADAs, the, with the wind gusts, the crosswind was over 40 knots. Plus, they were reporting the wind shear situation. So we were prepared that if this wasn't going to work out, we're just going to punch out of there, go back to Phoenix. Well, at first, the captain just didn't want to even try. He's like, why are we even bothering? You know, it's, there's no way. I'm like, well, the, the book says you can't land in knots more than 35 knots crosswind. Uh, and you can't operate, land, take off, or taxi right. with winds speeds over 50 knots. 50, yeah. And they were gusting a 49. So right. we had a couple if not three factors that were in play. Excess of 50 knots was possible. Crosswind limitation was definitely an issue. And wind yeah. shear, which is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Now, this wasn't a microburst uh, situation, wind right. shear, but it was horizontal wind shear, yeah. which can cause your airspeed to significantly drop or increase rapidly. Um, right. We do have wind shear avoidance in the aircraft. But with 5G being an issue at some of these airports, that could affect the wind shear technology with the radar yeah. altimeter, radio altimeter. Radio altimeter. So uh, that was also something that we were talking about and considering. So we walked through it and we decided, you know what, let's at least attempt the approach and we'll get wind check at 1,000 feet mm -hmm. if the approach is unstable, dangerous, or any of us feel uncomfortable at 1,000 feet, we'll punch out. If, the, if we get a wind check and the winds are acceptable, and if we feel it's safe, we both agree, we'll continue. And we'll get another wind check at 200 feet. And if at 200 feet everything seems stable, then we'll try to land the aircraft. If not, We'll just punch out. We won't bother. We'll just go straight to our alternate. So we had the plan set in place. Mm -hmm. So, and this is important, listeners, is to have a plan. You never want to just show up at an airport and wing it, <laughs> so to speak. You know, like like Tony and his captain did. Uh, you know, you you sit there and you think out all the scenarios and talk about when and how you're going going to. Uh, you know, approach this airport and what are you going to do in certain situations? And this is what we refer to as a threat forward briefing. You know, here we are, what's the threat going forward from here? You know, and this, this is uh, something that uh, hopefully a lot of you are, are incorporating into your, uh, 
um, planning and decision making. Yeah. I mean, because we're all pretty quick on our feet, but we both have to be on the same page. And if we've discussed it already, there is no question yes. of what's what the next step is. There is no question of what you're supposed to do on a go around because you're hammered into it, right? Positive eight, gear up, sure. all that stuff, right? So you're doing these yeah, memory items. Yeah. So when you're in a situation like this, like Rob was saying, you have to have this plan of attack. Now, there's a second thing that I learned many, many years ago from another captain that I was flying with back in my Sandpiper days. We had a very similar situation going into Detroit, and I know I've talked about this on a previous show, I think a couple years ago. What he taught me is what I implemented on this very flight. I wrote down through a the land app crosswind calculator, I plugged in a bunch of numbers. If the winds are 010 on the runway 8 left, which is what we were using, what's the maximum mm -hmm. amount of wind from what direction that I can hear that the controller is telling me that puts us within the legal limits? So I wrote down like 010, the winds can be no more than this. At 020, the winds can be no more than this. At 030, and so on and so forth. So I, I made four calculations from four different wind possible wind directions, and I wrote down the maximum gust winds that could be announced, and we would be then legal. So that if the tower then gives me a wind speed and direction at 500 feet, 1,000 feet, or 200 feet, whatever it is, I'm not doing math in my head. It's right. either below or above this number that I've pre-calculated, written on my little notepad or notepaper that I had right in front of me on my tray table. <laughs> Sorry, you Boeing guys. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so I had it all there, and sure enough, we never even got that far. At 4,000 yeah. feet on the downwind leg, the winds were 020 at 85 knots. Yes, we were flying on a 45 degree crab. We we're yeah. pointing, isn't that incredible? We were pointed at the airport and flying that downwind leg. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool, um, but also relatively intimidating. Now, we turned yeah. base to final airport in sight. Obviously, on a high wind day, you're going to have great visibility. And knowing that the aircraft, the preceding aircraft that attempted this in front of us, a Delta airplane, they did a go around at a thousand feet. They, they had a wind shear plus or minus 20 knots and they did a go around and they busted out and they went to their alternate. Um, so we were anticipating this. Well, mm. at 4,000 feet, turning base to final, cleared the visual, autopilot on, getting configured, almost completely configured, 4,000 feet, getting ready to intercept the localizer and glide path. We got a plus or minus which actually was a minus, 40 knots. <laughs> the trend vector for the speed went through the floor of the cockpit. It just, wow. the captain immediately yeah. responded. And you, and isn't it incredible to listen to the motor, the yeah. engines, when this is all happening and they're going yeah. from idle to like full thrust and you're just like, geez, this is crazy. You fe I felt the acceleration in my seat. I was, I was pushed into yeah. the back of my seat. Um, and even though we were at 4,000 feet, which is plenty above the ground, level, on a heading, um, the captain's reaction was what most people do because that's what's ingrained in us on the, in the simulator, of, in the training events. Because 
in the training event, in the sim, you're always doing the go around at the worst possible time, which is at your DA, decision altitude. Right. Low to the ground, 200 feet off the deck, and you're doing a go around, right? So you go through your litany of memory uh, procedures and flows. So go around toga, toga set, go around flaps, flaps to whatever, flaps. up, you know, three. three. Oh, sure. Whatever. And then uh, pause rate, gear up, gear up. And then if you're doing the procedure, you make sure that the, the guidance is there. If not, if ATC gave you a heading or altitude, you make sure you plug that in. It is asses and elbows for at yeah. least 30 seconds until everything gets settled and, you know, you get back. When you're at altitude, though, in level flight, experiencing a wind shear event like that, what is the proper response? How often do you practice this? My captain yeah. elected to go to toga. He saw the trend mm. vector of the speed, and he was like, uh-uh, toga, right. go around toga. So as soon as he went go around toga, what does the flight director do? Pitches up. Goes into the go-around mode. Goes into 100%, yep. 100% thrust. So we were assigned an altitude to intercept the localizer to descend, and now the airplane's climbing. So again... This was an asses and elbows. Now, luckily, I, I mean, between the two of us, we were able to not overspeed the aircraft, not overspeed the flaps, not bust the altitude, but it got ugly really quick because yeah. the airplane wanted to climb and, I, and he's going around Toga. Yeah. And I said, Toga set uh, 4,000 and he's climbing. He's like, uh, you know, yeah. starting to pitch up. And then he goes, uh, go, go, go around flaps. And I'm like, yeah, um, your speed's a little low. <laughs> I went, hold on, yeah. altitude, and I pulled his altitude, and I went, try to maintain 4,000. We don't need Toga. Go climb. He goes, oh, yeah, okay, climb. So he pulls it back to climb. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah, because you're kind of in between, you know, like three different procedures, which is, you know, just a kind of a cancel your go around, maintain your altitude. You're responding to a wind shear event, which there's a, you know, there's obviously a pretty um, different uh Pro, uh, procedure for a wind shear and then you're also you know executing a uh, it, it should it shouldn't be called to go around because you aren't really going around you're just canceling your approach clearance but you're still executing a go around right. you know what i mean so i mean there's three different things happening and there's three different procedures to hand to you know handle the same way so you know you you can this can get all bobbled up and yeah. uh in a heartbeat. And I think the, the, the reaction that could have been better was he reacted to the trend vector and not the airspeed. Right. right, the actual airspeed. The speed, actual yeah. airspeed, we were fine. Fine. We, we had a yeah. buffer uh, between yeah. the... Because the trend vector gives you, I think, what, 10 seconds? Tells you where your airspeed's going to be in, what, 10 seconds? Right. So, you know, you have plenty of time to respond if you respond to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we were able to, you know, and then that kind of, that that triggered a response from him when i said oh go to climb you know we're you know because you're going to overspeed your flaps so he goes oh so then he that that woke him up to kind of because he was in in yeah. the middle of three different procedures it kind of woke yeah. him up to the fact that okay we have plenty of altitude we're now speeding up rapidly um and i don't want to bust this altitude because we were given an altitude there could be traffic above or below yeah. us so he immediately got back down we didn't bust an altitude we didn't bust the uh, speed on over speed or under speed and that mm -hmm. triggered okay now we're getting back in the game 
And I made the response to ATC. They gave us maintain 4,000, fly the to fly 090. Uh, what do you want to do? And mm -hmm. I'm like, stand by. Because remember, yeah. communicate is the last thing you want to do. Aviate, navigate, communicate. So first mm -hmm. I got us a clearance yeah. to not continue and, and level off. Then I, I was back in the game with my captain. And we cleaned up the airplane. We picked it up to start, you know, get back up to 250 knots and get all cleaned up. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. We ran. I did a little flow of a checklist, an after takeoff checklist kind of thing, because now we had to make sure we we're configured and, you know, everything is back. Speed brakes were disarmed, all that stuff, right? So that happened. And we were climbing out and they said, well, what do you want to do? And it's like, well, we're going to go to our alternate Phoenix deck. Like, you don't want to go to L.A.? And we're like, oh, operations <laughs> said that LA's full. He goes, oh, well, yeah, I can understand that. And he goes, okay, fly this heading. Can you file? I said, excuse me, uh, it's filed as our alternate. Phoenix is filed yeah. as our alternate. Like, yeah, can you contact company? Because I don't have anything for the routing. I'm like, well, just give us, uh, yeah. give us something real quick. So he did. He gave us something. I wrote it down. I plugged it in the computer real quick. He got the autopilot back on mm -hmm. so that you know, I could be heads down for a moment. And uh, we ended up going all the way to Phoenix. Landed at Phoenix at two o'clock in the morning. Ah, oh, you wow. know. And so we were done. We had three legs that day. Yeah. We were done. Uh, we turned into pumpkins, and they put us up in a hotel. I slept for a couple hours, and then just hopped on a flight on my own and came home. And I had some appointments mm. I had to keep. Um, but it was an experience that had me thinking how we always train the worst case scenario for a go around to be at low altitude. But when you're, like you said, canceling an approach clearance, there is no reason to do this Jackie Chan reaction of, what the I go around? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. You know, all you have to do yeah. is kind of just get the wheels spinning yeah. up, let them spool up a little bit, yeah. get that you know, thrust. Now, we were also, like you said, dealing with wind shear. And so yeah. that so you never area. actually got a wind shear um, caution or warning. So going into Toga would not trigger the uh, go wind shear go around. No. Um, what do they call it? Escape, program the escape the, procedure uh, program, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's something to think about if you find yourself in a situation that you're plenty of altitude above the ground, more than more than 1500 feet above the ground and you experience a trend vector that starts to die on you. Yeah. React, obviously. Um, yeah. and, and I think in all, it was a positive outcome for us because we sure. were both quick enough on, you know, quick witted enough to make sure that we didn't get into a situation that maybe oversped the airplane. Um, the yeah. opposite could have been true where, the reaction wasn't timely enough to where it did get into a situation where we got slow enough sure. to stall or a stick shaker or something like that. And then you're really in a pickle. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good work there. I mean, obviously the outcome was successful and everybody's safe and you can sit here and talk about it. Um, and that's that's the point of the whole <laughs> the whole job and the whole conversation. Let me ask you, so how was ATC during your actual uh, go around did you announce go around or your yeah right away because because what i find is you know atc can be an, a distracting um factor in yeah. you know your your pr procedure because they're sitting there hollering altitudes and headings and all these other 
you know, frequencies for you when, you know, you're just trying to get the airplane <laughs> where you need it to go and clean it up and not overspeed and all that other stuff. So how was that during the whole procedure? Yeah, I think it worked out pretty good because since we were at altitude, ATC had no idea what we were doing at, uh, at the onset. Sure. And we were the ones that yeah, were monitoring the speed and trend vector and said, oh, that's a, we recognized the loss of, of airspeed, um, reacted extremely quickly, and um, the outcome was fine. But because the reaction was so just kind of like without thinking, it was just like one of those gut reactions of going into toga. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, you know, obviously following the command bars, uh, which is an yeah. immediate climb. Uh, because of that, I had to initiate that ATC response immediately so that they could possibly give us relief from our previous clearance, which was to intercept the yeah. localizer and fly a visual. And yeah. so they were like, okay. And then, yes, they were talking, and I told them, hold on a second. You know, and that's when we got the airplane cleaned up and on speed and everything settled. And then I got back to them saying, okay, yeah, our intent is to go to, to Phoenix. Now, once you do the initial go-around call, ATC is going to give you a heading and an altitude, and sometimes you don't have time to read it back. Yeah, exactly. You just got to go through your flow to aviate that aircraft. Yeah, aviate, navigate, communicate. That's the three priorities. And that's what I'm kind of getting at is, is sometimes ATC will be quick to uh, give you all those instructions not taking into consideration what you're going through in, in the cockpit, especially during this high uh, workload environment that you just entered into. Um, you know, you're trying to execute the plan that you talked about probably 20 minutes ago. Um, approaching the airport and making sure that you and you know your your co-pilot there are are working as a team and, and not fumbling things up like you briefed yeah. it <laughs> and 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 mean in the meantime trying to make sure that you know ATC knows what you're doing but you know you need them to kind of hold back a little yeah. bit <laughs> until you can get the airplane uh, configured and you know have enough brain cells and, and CPU memory to, to follow their instructions. Cause when you you're going through 50 million things, just trying to read back a heading or an altitude can be complicated. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, good job, yeah. man. That's, that's, that's shit hot work. Over oh, there. thank you. Thank you. So, you know, we've been very busy, uh, with the communications at work. We've been getting emails, it seems like almost every few hours, about this 5G oh, implementation. Man. It's tiring. And, I mean, you had an experience that you had the FAA on your jump seat just recently. Mm -hmm. And, and there was an interesting comment that they made. What can you tell us about that? So yesterday, I worked a flight from St. Louis to Dallas, and we had an FAA inspector on board, and he oversees um legacy airlines um 737 program and uh you know the the conversation you know the dark horse in the room <laughs> was the 5g um stuff that's been very popular in the news and so we turned around and asked them and we said hey you know what what do you know about the 5g um issue that's been going on with uh, with the aviation industry and he's like you know y'all you all know probably as much as I do. Um, it all the all this stuff 
has um, developed in the last couple of weeks. Um, it is something that is a continuously changing environment for us. And to be honest with you, it's, it's, it, a lot of the decision-making is way at the higher levels of the government um, between the FAA and, and the um, uh, communications uh, FCC, F yeah, federal communications uh, FCC. What does FCC stand for? Federal communications commission, I think. Uh, commission. Okay. Thank you. Wow. I should I know that, but anyway, uh, <laughs> and he said the, uh, the, the procedures and the AMOC stuff that's being handed down is really stuff that we're just passing along from, you know, the higher levels of the FAA. And uh, so a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that they've been talking about, he says, um, you know, are, are just theoretically what could happen to an airplane systems, which, uh, you know, these are things that haven't been tested yet. And that's the big problem. And he said, as far as, you know, how to handle it and everything is like, you know, the, the best thing that we can do at this point is just um, make everybody fly at cat one minimums, which does not use a radio altimeter um, for, for the minimums as far as like visibility and, and, you know, approach criteria. So, uh, but there are definitely other systems that are affected by the, the uh, you know, the radio altimeter system. Um, so that's why there's a lot of still a lot of other, um, uh, limitations that are being imposed on operators when are flying into these airports that are notumed by uh, 5G. So they, they, so a lot of the communications have been about what would happen or how to handle or what to look out for um, when you're operating into and out of uh, these airports. Um, yeah, I could go on into detail with a lot of other uh, with like the 737 since I've, you know, used to fly that airplane. I mean, obviously I may get a couple things, you know, messed up, but, you know, we could talk about it and, um, you know, obviously we could talk about Airbus stuff too. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the gist of it is that we're referring to the 5G antennas that telecom companies are now broadcasting from so all around your neighborhood you'll see these cellular antennas right and they could be on towers they can be on the side of buildings and there's a new bandwidth that is being used it's called the c-band we've talked about this on the previous show and the c-band operates under a specific frequency that is very close to the frequency used in aircraft on their radio altimeters. A radio altimeter yeah. is a, a bandwidth radio frequency that is transmitted, usually from somewhere around the nose of the aircraft, straight down. Yeah. And, and I understand like the upper, the upper limits, the upper bandwidth of the radio altimeter actually over, overlaps the lower end limit of the 5G technology ah. and that's where the conflict the conflict exists yeah. so to understand what's happening with airline operators all you have to do is look up the ad 2021-23-12 in other words airworthiness directive that came out on the 23rd of december of 2021 
Uh, the FAA published this AD for all transport and commuter aircraft equipped with a radio altimeter. This AD requires revisions to occur to the limitations chapters of the aircraft operating manual or AOMs of these operators prohibiting certain operations that require radio altimeter data when in the presence of 5G C-band interference at airports identified by the 5G NOTAM or Notices to Air Missions. In compliance, each of Legacy Airlines' AOM limitations chapters have been updated with the AD guidance to include the following limitations. When operating in U.S. airspace, the following operations requiring radio altimeters are prohibited in the presence of the 5G uh, NOTAM, um, unless you qualify under the AMOC, or Alternate Method of Compliance, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. So I'm going to take a look at this. Uh, this... Uh, advisory circular that we got in our in our bag of tricks in our kit bag um and it <laughs> it indicates that first thing you have to do as an operator as a pilot is determine whether or not the 5g notam is published for your airport the one thing i like is some of the airports that i've flown into this last week says right on the atis this airport has been recognized as a, a 5g interference airport so you know right then and there. Yes. You don't have to look, digging through your flight release to find this. Although, and that's something that's something I brought up to the FFA inspector yesterday uh -huh. is that that portion of the dissemination of the information is not standardized. Obviously, it's in the NOTAMs, right. which is the notice to air missions. Right. <laughs> being woke now, um, but it's very important being a new NOTAM that they put this on the ATIS. Yes. They need to do that. They're more there. And I told them, I said, we, what's on an ATIS all the time, burden advisories in the visit in the in vicinity of the airport, BIV, baby. as aviators, we know <laughs> that we don't need to hear that anymore. That's legal ease, buddy. Those without stay. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's for the let's lawyers. Let's put the 5G <laughs> notams on every ATIS. Yeah. You know, let's, let's get that out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's like that, that bird's right. in the vicinity. That's that's legalese, man. That's only for the lawyers so that when when you exactly. when you hit a bird to go, well, did, were you notified that there are birds in the vicinity of the airport? Oh, I never heard of that before. Exactly. It wasn't in the eight, sir. And I think that is a question that's on the uh on the on the bird strike form that you fill out electronically now. Absolutely. Was it on the ATIS? Was was it come on was it, it it yeah. That's and because okay. it's on that form. It's now on the ATIS. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. So we have to we have to figure out if this is a 5G airport. Now, immediately, as soon as you go into your JEP app and you put in your flight number and it pulls up the routing and the information in the airports, all you have to do is go to the destination airport, hit on the 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 109 page or the taxi diagram on the bottom, there's a little NOTAM button. You push the NOTAM button and you just scroll through there and it'll tell you right there. You don't have to go digging through your flight release for it, but it's also there in a flight release. And they made it easy for yeah. us. Yeah. So that's the number one. Now, if you're going to an airport and a 5G NOTAM is not published for that airport, all of this doesn't matter. You operate normally without restrictions. Right. Fantastic. Right. If you are operating at an airport that has a 5G NOTAM and you're flying an airplane with a radio altimeter and you and you have the capability of doing less than a CAT1 approach or CAT2, CAT3, or an RNAV, RNP, 
then you have to take a look at this. And what it's saying is you should review the F4 messages for, at least for legacy, that's what they call them, for the alternate method of compliance or the AMOC. And that is runway specific. So you have to make sure that right. the runway of intended use and your aircraft are compliant. Now, like I said, we have been getting emails and notifications a couple times a day. First, the 737s were AMOC compliant because they determined that the radio altimeters on that fleet did not have any signs of issues with the 5G C-band stuff. Then we got an email saying, okay, Airbus uh, people, the Airbus that have sharklets are using a radio altimeter that is also not shown any signs of deviation. Therefore, you are now AMOC compliant on that fleet. And, and then last night, late last night, we finally got the other non-sharklet Airbus fleet that was using a different radio altimeter. They finally got approval. So um, now what happens is if you are operating an aircraft using runways included in the AMOC, then you operate normally without restrictions. So again, okay. even if you're landing at a five G airport, it still tells you that you need to look out for <laughs> interference. Yeah, we're getting yeah we're gonna get to that. Um, oh, okay, okay. But uh, if you're operating an aircraft using runways that are not included in this list of AOC runways, then mm -hmm. you have these affected systems that you have to um, take a look out for, and you can't do possibly cat two cat three approaches or rmp approaches now rob you were saying that you still have to monitor some systems even though you can conduct operations normally you can do the cat three out of land the affected systems right. it's a pretty long list of stuff uh the radio altimeter height indication on the pfds may be inconsistent accompanied by untimely ra callouts additionally three uh, there may be uh abrupt decreases in height or erratic RA height indications. So that's one thing to look out for. You could get an untimely minimums call or call out, right. uh, in which case, if you can see the runway environment visually, then you can continue. If you can't and you get an untimely minimums call, then you got to do a go around. Uh, Autoland warning light may flash if you're doing a Cat 3 Autoland. Uh, inappropriately. The uh, ground reference on the PFD, the altitude scale, may be erroneous. The, the brown ground, the, the indication mm -hmm. that we have on the PFD. Uh, also, during initial climb, uh, you, can, you expect to have takeoff inhibit to terminate normally on the engine warning display to takeoff inhibit. To normally terminates around 1,500 mm -hmm. feet. That silences, the takeoff inhibition silences Nuisance, nuisance warnings, warnings and right? And that stuff. things that are not cautions, critical. I think. Yeah, things that are not critical. Um, and then after fifteen hundred yeah. feet, then anything that may have popped up will pop up because you're in a critical phase of takeoff or landing as well. Um, during takeoff, you can you you expect nav to engage normally. Nav usually engages at thirty feet RA or five seconds after takeoff if the RA fails. So the nav enunciation on your PFD 
uh, on your on your enunciator panel there uh, could potentially erroneously either not indicate or indicate too not soon. Age, or, yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you can get the yeah. the famous Airbus retard right when you're when you're in the flare phase <laughs> and the aircraft says 50 40 10 yeah. retard 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 and that tells retard, you to retard, retard the throttles right well that could be untimely and an error can i mean it could tell you to retard at 100 feet that's not good yeah. <laughs> so yeah. use your use your 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 head you know on this um so there's so many systems that include the land the flare the throttle idle yeah uh indicators localizer capture yeah stuff and that's just on the airbus i know on the 737 the the low visibility low visibility operations um well they use the hud on the left side and whenever the uh, runway visual range rvr is less than uh 1600 rvr the captain has to perform the takeoff and the captain is, uses a hud um on his uh on the takeoff and looking through the hud is you know, presents a whole bunch of information. One of the information that he receives is pitch cues and uh, flare cues for landing. Mm. So, um, and that all is written reference to the radio altimeter. So, uh, the the interference can cause premature or inaccurate flare cues and tail strike cues um, in the HUD for the, the captain landing landing or taking off the airplane. Um, so, uh, you know, that could potentially cause an accident or an incident, um, you know, which is obviously something you don't want. Um, and then, you know, at, at, and that, at, and all the other stuff that you talked about are definitely a huge factor on the 737 um, as well. So yeah, it's, it's a, it can be a pretty big deal, but then the big question too is, is why, well, you know, Europe is doing it already. They already have 5G and all that stuff. Yeah. And why why aren't they having issues? You know, that's so that's that's a good question to ask, right? Yeah. I mean, why why are we having these issues and in, in not Europe? Yeah, and I and from what was explained to me, but I have not read it anywhere yet, is that mm-hmm. their 5G over in Europe and in Asia have a different frequency, different bandwidth. That's possible. Well, I don't know the possible well the faa inspector told me so that they 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 did brief him on this he told me that they they did have they did do a better job in um testing the equipment before it went live and one of the things that they determined what that was the perfect or not perfect but that was a solution for for this whole thing was to not have the antennas aimed at the um, ILS, you know, antennas or areas around the airport have them directly aimed in the environment that the aircraft are operating into and out of, and also change the direction and the intensity of the antennas so that they're, you know, so that they're just not interfering with, uh, you know, the instruments and stuff of an aircraft. Um, and all that was already handled before it went live. Uh, he said that when the when the uh, wireless companies went to the FCC and applied for the permits to do all this stuff, uh, it never went through the FAA's channel until late in the process. So when they got the approval from the FCC to design 
or not so much design, they already had to, the design already in place that whenever the, uh, the wireless companies got the approval to um, do, do the projects, they just went ahead and, um, you know, constructed their sites based upon the approval that they received from the FCC, which did not include, you know, the testing from the FAA side of the house. So, uh, you know, so they just went ahead and that's their big fight right now was like, we already received approval to do this. We spent millions and trillions of dollars. I don't know how much money they spent on it, but certainly millions, possibly billions of dollars, um, you know, constructing and, and, and putting together this network. Uh, we're ready to flip the switch on and make money on it. And you guys are stopping us from doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is funny you say that so, because I was smiling because I, I've been flying airplanes for over 20 years. And mm -hmm. from the beginning, I've always been told that the FCC and the FAA have had this feud going on. They don't like each other. They don't yeah. talk to each other. I don't know how true this is, but... It totally makes well, sense because every few years you hear a story about the FCC yeah. thumbing their nose at the FAA. Yeah. I can go on a tangent on any of these topics right now. I mean, let's, you know, just for example, without going too crazy, let's just look at the, the latest incident with uh, the gentleman that, uh, that came over from London. <laughs> and he was a known, and he just committed murder here in in in, in um, he not committed murder he he uh, he held um, a rabbi and a and a few people's hostage here in Colleyville, Texas. It made national news. He's a known, basically a known terrorist, and he made it into the country. Uh, and this all happened while I was sick and and you know in COVID, so I was watching news and all that stuff. But you know the government agency, he was on a no fly list. He was not even supposed to be able to fly. How the hell? from wherever he was to the United States. But because the agencies don't talk to one another, mm. guess where he ended up? Yeah. Here in the middle of Texas. And Jeez. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, there's a lot, obviously a lot more detail that I don't know, but you know, why did he, how did he get here? Yeah. And, and that's, we have all of these restrictions in place, but it goes to show you the communications problem that we have within our big government agencies yeah you know it seems like either it's not my job or you know we didn't hear about it or that information has been redacted so we don't know <laughs> you know right so anyway whatever let's move on <laughs> <laughs> you know that tells me it's uh, it's a good time to take a quick break and we'll be right back right after a word All from right. our sponsors <laughs> good time <laughs> Can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I'm just not sure. Yeah, you get me going on that stuff, man. And the crazy thing is I don't know half the thing that I'm, you know, half the, the detail about it because it's there's so much to it. I read about it a long time ago, but it's just big government stuff that it's driving me nuts lately. Yeah. You know, it's just, oh, my gosh. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been having uh, fantastic conversations about wind shear and 5G and, and go-arounds and all this stuff. And now we want to take a moment and celebrate the fact that this is the 100th flight, the 100th wow. show 
of the Squawk Ident podcast. And you know, it's been a fantastic journey to be on this journey with all of you. I went back and was listening to some of our favorite podcasts from the past, <laughs> um, some of our favorite episodes. And, <laughs> you know, those first episodes, uh, yeah, <laughs> I sounded like I was. Oh, you learn know, and you grow, man. That's how it is. Balls and uh, do you like my sweaty balls? Sweaty balls? Oh, they're they're fantastic. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. cool. And, but you know, I can't. I gotta say, it was pretty nostalgic. It was kind of cool. Um, but we wanted. I've been asking now for quite some time. What are your favorite episodes? And a few of our listeners have responded. Uh, and and it, the consensus is that they really enjoy the episodes where we had our firsts. Uh, my first episode, uh, the first time you were on the show, the first time Roger was on the show, and the first time Kyle was on the show. So we definitely took a listen to those. And what I did is I went back and I just took some short clips from past episodes. And what I'd like to do is just take a walk back and just remember some of the funnier and maybe more creative moments on the show. This is a clip from Flight One, Hooked on Flying, is the name of the clip. Let's take a listen. When I decided to get on this adventure of flying, uh, I was making pretty good money uh, living in New Mexico at the time, working for this big box retailer, and my wife bought me a discovery flight. So she said, you know, every time an airplane passes, you stop the car, you look up and, and you're, you're telling me what kind of airplane it is. And why don't you just follow your dreams? Since you were a child, you wanted to be a pilot. So why didn't you follow it? And I had to explain that, you know, my, my family really thought it was a little expensive and a little dangerous. I can remember, you know, my parents asking me, you know, Tony, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, always a pilot. I want to be a pilot. And, you know, my mom right away, no, 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 no. You cannot be a pilot. It's a too dangerous. It's a too dangerous. And man, I was like, oh, come on. You know, you're, I want to be a pilot. And no, 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 no. It's a too expensive. We cannot afford it. So, you know, I love my mother to death. And the truth is she thought it was a dangerous thing. Uh, she wanted her son to have uh, both feet planted on the earth at all times, unless, you know, we were taking the trip to Italy to go see family or something. But but this was the reality. And so I've always kind of put that on the back burner that I was interested. It was a passion. But, you know, it just really was not something that I felt was obtainable. And it wasn't until I met my wife that she said, you know, that's absolute bullshit. Uh, you should never allow anyone to discourage you to follow your dreams. And it, it was it was her doing, her purchase of this discovery flight that got me just knee-deep into this passion. So she buys this discovery flight, and I can remember uh, a friend of mine, uh, my roommate from college, uh, came along. He was visiting us from Los Angeles. Uh, we were in Albuquerque at the time. And uh, she says, now you take your friend up and let's get up there and just enjoy yourself. And who knows, maybe you might want to do this as a hobby. So we show up to this appointment and here comes the flight instructor. 
tall, good-looking Italian guy who comes right up to me, sticks out his hand, shakes my hand, and says, Ciao, my name is Luca. I will be your flight instructor. We are going to go up and have a good time. And I immediately started talking to him in Italian. And his eyes just lit up and a big smile. And we just got along swimmingly from the get-go. So we went up into the pattern, you know, did the couple touch and goes, you know, he let me have command of the aircraft and, and he was explaining how to turn coordinated turns. And by the time we landed and taxied in, I can remember that my smile was ear to ear, my teeth out grinning, just the happiest I had been in so long. And I caught the bug, the the aviation bug that you hear of. So I decided that it was fate that here this uh, paisan from Italy who was here to build time so that he can go back to Italy and get a job so he could be with his family. And I happened to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico because of my previous employer and, and the direction I was going with that. And here we are meeting. So I said, man, I, I really have to try this. I'm, I'm going to try to get my private pilot license. I really don't know much about it, but I'm going to start to study and get into it. And before you know it, I had my private pilot license in hand. My first passenger was my wife. We went up and we toured some of the beautiful mesas in the Albuquerque area and uh, tried to stay away from some of those beautiful clouds. Uh, we often uh, joke around that the sky in Albuquerque is a lot like the sky in the Simpsons cartoons. It's just perfect all the time. with The backdrop of the Sandia Mountains at sunset, and they just turn this beautiful watermelon red. It just was a wonderful place to learn how to fly. So from that, uh, I progressed forward with a little bit of instrument lessons and instrument instruction, and then a tragic event happened in the United States, uh, 9-11. I listened back to this very first episode where I explained this, and I thought, <laughs> and, and, <Yeah>. and, and, and. <laughs> that's, that's part of learning, man. Uh, and that was a good story you told, you know, you're, you're trying to convey your, you know, excitement and passion into words and, you know, try to communicate that to the listener. And it, it can be a little bit challenging at first when you're, you know, haven't, haven't done this before. And, uh, you know, I, I know I still do it. I, I, I know I stumble and stutter and, you know, I can never think of the right word or phrase to come, come up with. I've never been good yeah, at we that all to do. begin with. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But I got to admit, though, uh, from the first few times you were on the podcast with me to today, <laughs> um, I totally yeah. you've like come out of your shell and, and you do that less. And Roger, too. I, I, and I was talking the other day to my wife and she's like, yeah, Roger's really changed. Yeah. He like laughs and like jokes around with you on the podcast. Uh -huh. and yeah. <laughs> like at the beginning, he was just sitting there going, uh -huh. yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> oh, we love you, Roger. Um, yeah. This next clip is uh, one of my favorites as well. One of our favorites. 
uh, Roger's first time on the podcast. Now, I had a very <laughs> intricate, by intricate, I mean simple, <laughs> studio at the time. Uh, you know, I first was getting into podcasting. This was like my eighth episode here, Flight 8. Uh, this was where Roger uh, came to, to, to my house, and we sat there in the studio uh, he sat on the sofa across from me. I had a microphone uh, on him. Uh, I had the microphone on myself. I had this new fancy Zoom recorder that I was using. And uh, we just sat there and had a conversation in, in the room. And he told us about his experience flying a Beach 99 over Sholo. And when a, a seven to eight pound bird went through his windscreen and created quite a commotion. Let's listen in on the first time Roger told us about his ordeal over Sholo. And then just about 10 years, a little bit over 10 years ago today, uh, something major happened to you. And I remember when you called me, did you call me from the hospital or just after you got out of the hospital or... I mean, what I could not answer that question. Who I called when at what point? It's it's, it's kind of a little hazy. Uh, there might have been some drugs involved there. <laughs> yep. Well, well, from the uh, KOLD News in uh, in Arizona, uh, about ten years ago, uh, and and I'm going to let you kind of get into the details, but it, they said there that it was smooth flying for a pilot over the skies of Arizona until a bird came crashing through the front windshield of his twin-engine cargo plane. The impact left a bloody mess in the cockpit and forced an emergency landing in Sholo. The impact shattered the pilot's side windscreen. The pilot is... Our very own Roger suffered minor cuts and bruises to his face and splattered bird parts across the inside of the aircraft. Uh, this is uh, what Ian or Ian Gregor of the FAA spokesperson uh, indicated to the, uh, the journalist that was writing the article. That was uh, Dan Marys of KOLD News. But when I read that, and, and after talking to you, there's such a disconnect of what really happened. And well, I mean, that just sounds like, oh, a bird went through the window and oh yeah, okay. But what, I mean, give it to us. Let me hear it. What, in your words, you, I remember you telling me about it and you woke up that morning, you're running a little bit behind schedule. Uh, you, you didn't get your contacts in, so you threw your glasses on and you just made it to the airport on time. And it was a beautiful well, day to fly, right? You know, that's it. The most succinct way to put it, I thought I was going to die. I thought it was, I, I honestly thought it was all over. Um, you know, the, doing, doing the job that I did, we had early, early morning flying. And so we typically, I would typically have to be at the airport around five o'clock in the morning or so. And we would launch between six and six 30 in the morning. And then we'd come back later in the evening. But this one was a departure from Phoenix International Airport. It was um, yep, but ten years ago, <laughs> about to the day. Um, launched typical November day out of Phoenix, clear, cool. Um, was flying about I don't know, 120 mile, I think, flight or so from Phoenix out to Sholo. It had been uneventful. And I had start. I had just started the descent into Sholo Airport. 
which is an uncontrolled field, no tower. I was not talking to air traffic control or anyone at that point. I had, I had just made a call on the CTAF, the common traffic advisory frequency, letting the airport and the airport environment and anyone else in the area know, you know, where I was coming from about 20 miles out to the, to the West. And then it was like a, a bomb had gone off in the airplane. Um, I, I did not know what happened as it, as it was, I had made that call on the, the traffic frequency and another airplane had just departed and he was headed back towards Phoenix. You know, we, he was climbing through, you know, 8,500 feet or something. I was descending at 11,000 feet. We were separated by about 20 miles, but when you're at about 11,000 feet, what do you hit? You know, you hit airplanes. And so, you know, initially I had no idea what had happened. I thought I must've hit this other airplane. I remember just kind of thinking it's over, you know, this is how it's going to end. And I remember looking out the, the right, the right window thinking, just expecting to see the ground hurtling towards me and how my wife was going to be upset that I, I died without telling her. Um, and it's, it's amazing how fast your brain works. You know, it, you know, I can tell this story that can take, I mean, you know, 10 minutes and in reality, all these thoughts go are going through, going through my mind and, you know, in, in split seconds. Um, but I looked out the window and it looked normal. And, and then I worked my way from the right side of the airplane and I came across to, um, the instrument stack and all of the instruments were reading the same as they, just like they should. And then I kept moving from the instruments and then I got to the front windscreen right in front of me. And there was a big gaping hole at the top, the top portion of the windscreen and the rest of it was completely opaque, um, from, from the glass shattering. And I saw a, a tuft of feathers that got caught kind of right where the, the windscreen was and the fuselage of the airplane. And that's when it hit me and it clicked. Oh, okay. I must've hit a bird. And then all of a sudden after that realization, that's when things started. I, I realized I was hurt. There was blood everywhere. I remember at that point, my head hurt and I put my hand up to my head and I thought half my head was gone. It was just a warm, bloody, matted mess on my head. My hand was covered in blood. Uh, there was glass and blood all over the place. Um, like you had mentioned, you know, it was a five o'clock, you know, we had a five o'clock show at the airport in the morning and I didn't always put my contacts in. And I, this particular morning I had put my glasses on and my glasses were gone. I had no idea where my glasses were. It was loud as all get out. My headset was gone. Um, and it, it, you know, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, okay, well it, that operation and, and, and a lot of 135 cargo operations, it's single pilot. And I was Self. And I remember sitting, I, I distinctly remember sitting there after going through, after all this had happened and thinking to myself, well, Roger, there's nobody else here. You better fly the damn plane. And that's when the adrenaline started kicking in. And, you know, I, I think looking back on it, that I'm pretty proud of myself for 
for doing the things that I did, um, you know, after landing was, is kind of a different story, but, um, you know, there I was, I didn't, you know, we didn't have GPS in those airplanes. We didn't have autopilot in, in those airplanes. And so I was, here I was flying along hurt with a terrible headache. I wasn't sure how much blood was, how much was the birds. Right. Right. I mean, that's amazing. Just you kept it together the whole time. You just, you just, you, you kind of reasoned through it logically, you kept it together. And so you couldn't see forward. How did you land the airplane? Well, you, you know, by the time I got to landing, it was okay. By the time I actually figured out where I was, I found the airport within an ADF and an NDB. Um, and I, I, I ended up kind of winding up on a 45 to a right downwind entry. And that was all okay. Because at that point, when you're flying, a, and I was in the right traffic pattern, you know, you're looking out the right side of the airplane. And when it was about 500 feet after I was on final that things kind of started to, to go sideways again, you know, um, that's when I kind of lost a little bit of the visual, but you, know, you still have the front right wind, windscreen and the, uh-huh. you get to the ground, you know, the more you can see out of all the other windows. I was a little worried. I, I remember getting close to touchdown and I, I kind of, I balked at it a little bit and I, I pulled back on the yoke. Um, and I didn't add any power. And again, that's one of those things that I distinctly remember going through my mind and it was what Roger. So it's going to be better the next time you do this. And I, I took the power levers <laughs> and I pulled it back to the stop and I pitched back and then I just waited. And I, I did, I touched down that the stall warning horn did go off. I would touch down a little bit left of center line. Um, but, and at that point I knew it was over and that's when that that release of adrenaline happened and I, I was on landing rollout and I just started bawling um, and things kind of got a little, I kind of lost a little bit of my focus at that, <laughs> at that point after getting the plane to the ramp, mostly because I knew at that point that I was going to live. Cause up until that point, I, I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. Yeah. And, and you, you were able not only to get the airplane off the runway, but you continued your taxi to the tie down. Is that right? I continued the taxi to the ramp as it turned out. I parked the plane someplace different than I thought I had. And then I also couldn't, I I couldn't for the life of me figure out how I was supposed to turn the airplane off. (laughs) I remember there was a firefighters outside, you know, waiting, waiting for me to emerge because, you know, they saw this big gaping hole. Um, but I, as I remember thinking is, oh, well, I'm going to, ch- I'm going to kill the firefighters because I, I can't figure out how to turn the airplane off. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> I was, it was, I was kind of a mess, um, after, after landing, um, but up in, up until that point, it, you know, like when, when people ask about, you know, emergencies and how you're going to respond, I've now had that experience that even in an emergency like I have full confidence that I will be able to at least keep my cool because I've lived, yeah. I, I've, I've done it. I thought I was going to die. There was nobody else there. I was not like I could talk to anybody else. My headset was gone. I mean, I, I have no communications. I'm injured, uh, you know, 18 stitches in my head. There's blood glass. I can't see. And I kept, I kept it, I kept it together. 
And I think yeah. that's the most important thing in the end. I think that that's the most important thing is just being able to keep your cool so that you can at least be able to logically think through some of the things that, you know, do happen in airplanes from time to time. Wow. Our captain Roger, uh, you know, he, he's very modest and he doesn't even like talking about his experience yeah. that much anymore because he feels like, well, okay, that was his one thing. It's over. It's time to move on. Mm. But, Man, I you know, to to hear that interview, to have him share that with us, and knowing him all these years, I can't say <laughs> enough how proud yeah. I am. That's of that. truly a, uh, an amazing what a pilot um, string of events that happened to a uh, uh, you know a genuinely nice guy, you know, and um, thankful for his uh, his training and. And, you know, his, he has such a good head on his shoulder. He was able to, uh, you know, create a successful outcome to what would have been in most situations, a deadly situation. So, um, yeah, he's an awesome guy. Uh, you know, an amazing situation that, that he's now, you know, walked away from and, and is able to talk about it and share his experience and his expertise. And, you know, here he is flying, uh, you know, big corporate airplanes now. And, and, uh, you know, he has that under his belt and, you know, I'm sure if another situation arise, he'll be the right person in the right, in the left or right seat to, uh, you know, to get him through it. What he said there towards the end of that interview, I think was absolutely crucial. He mm. was able to keep his head on straight and he was able yeah. to make the decisions and go through what he needed to do in order to have, at that point, the best possible outcome, which is get the airplane on the ground, get it shut down, get yeah. it, you know, get the help that he needed from from rescue. Um, and yeah, my hat's off to him, man. He kept his head on yeah. and did a fantastic job. One of my favorite interviews to date. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I I have another favorite interview from oh, an yeah? individual who told me about an experience he had. When he entered the 9G club. Do you know this guy? Oh, this story sounds familiar. Yeah, from Flight yeah, 19. let's listen to it. This is the first time we heard from our very own Rob D. A lot less stressful than uh, as being a mechanic. So that's how I got into flying. Now, I remember you telling me about that ride. Um, that was kind of a not a usual thing, was it? to get a ride in You're back right. of an F-16. Yeah, the, you know, most people don't realize or most people don't know that uh, in the Air Force, the uh, the officers are the uh, individuals that actually fly the airplanes and, and they, they take the aircraft into uh, war zones and stuff like that. And and the enlisted guys are, if you're, if it's a, if it's a cargo plane or a large, large aircraft, uh, they would be like the uh, personnel crew on board, support crew but still the officers would fly it. But on a fighter airplane, it's only the officers that take that airplane to battle. So me being a crew chief, I'd launch the airplane from my base and I'd stay at the base and the airplane would go out and fly its mission and then it'd return. And then that's when I'd, I'd perform all the maintenance on the airplane. So getting a ride in an F-16 was kind of a you know rare occasion for an enlisted person. And they did do it and uh, they did give people rides, but it, you, there was certain... You know, you'd either have to be, uh, 
you know, you'd have probably have to retreat, uh, receive it a, an award or a medal or, um, you know, recognized by your superiors mm-hmm. as a, you know, superior, uh, airman. And, uh, for me, probably a long discussion somewhere else, but, um, I was a professional racquetball player and I represented the air force in inner service championships. And, uh, so I had won the championship inner service at that time. And that's one of the things that, you know, I got recommended for so and uh, recognized for. And uh, so they gave me a ride in the F-16. So from racquetball champion to riding yeah. in the back of an F-16 trainer. That's, that's it, man. That's, <laughs> it <was> crazy. <laughs> that's amazing. So and it was amazing. Of course, here's what I think most of the listeners are going to want to know. You got to ride in the back. And I know that that pilot probably showed you at least a taste of what the F-16 can do. Did you have the bag oh. and did you use it? <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. Let me tell you, he gave me three tastes, <laughs> three bags. <laughs> it was, and, and, and I later found out that there was a, uh, a bet or a challenge on how quick and how, how many bags uh, the, the pilot could get you know, could get out of me. <laughs> nice. And, and the funny, and the reason why was a lot of the pilots that uh, were in my squadron were guys I, I played racquetball with for fun and for, for practice. So, uh, you know, I'd whoop up on them on the racquetball court. So, you know, they, that was in their element. I mean, they were on, they're on my court, you know, in my element on the right. court. So now I was in their element. <laughs> payback time. So, <laughs> payback time. So yeah, they put amazing. it to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm a member of the 9.2 G club. So, <laughs> oh my, really? That's crazy. Yeah. 9.2 yeah. G's. 9.2 G's. And you didn't black out? Oh, uh, yeah. I blacked out a couple times trying to get to 9.2 G's. The, uh, the G forces experienced on, on those airplanes are incredible. And, and they teach you the, uh, I forget the name of the, the, the maneuver. I think it's Valsabic maneuver or it's a hick sound you make to you know force all your blood uh keep it in the upper extremities and and tighten your your abs and your legs and stuff like that well there's a it's a technique and it's something you have to practice and um when they when they load up the airplane the onset of the g-forces you really have to time it just right because those g-forces can you know come up you know skyrocket extremely quick sure and if you don't hit it just right uh, you may not get that, you know, uh, get initial... keep the blood up in your, in the, yeah. So yeah, I, you get the tunnel vision really quick and then everything goes black and yeah, yeah. it's not, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I've, I've experienced tunnel vision during flight training, nothing in a jet powered, uh, fighter or anything, but yeah, it is not fun. And for those of you that are listening, that are going through flight training or thinking about it, part of the training that every, at least every flight instructor has to go through is they have to experience spin training and they have to then be able to teach it once they have candidates that are up to the point where it's not just a demonstration as it would be with a private pilot license, but now with the instrument rating or a flight instructor rating, I believe you have to actually demonstrate and teach. So, um, I, I remember 
uh, being in a 152, an acrobatic 152 over the northwest side of Phoenix near Luke Air Force Base there in the training center or training area. And I can remember, you know, I did fine. I don't get sea legs or seasick at all. I don't get motion sickness or car sickness. I'm, I'm a roller coaster kind of guy. And I can remember uh-huh. during that training, there was the, I forget what they call it. The death spiral is the, is the, uh, yeah. not so common term, but yeah, I can yeah. remember it. I, I could see that tunnel vision happening where it's just kind of closing in on you. This darkness, blurriness yeah. coming in and, yeah. You know, I, I never blacked out because obviously how many G's can that thing pull? You know, maybe two, <laughs> two and a half, three, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I can only imagine nine G's. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's an, it's a testament to, to all the military pilots out there and the rigors yeah. of their training that really. they have to go through really gives you a sense of appreciation. I'm sure you can attest yeah. to the five G man. Nine G. Aha, the 9G man. <laughs> Come on, you got to get that right. 5Gs isn't, isn't nothing compared to well, We've been talking about 5Gs all, all day today. <laughs> 5G. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Maybe people oh, think that, shit. hey, 5G, that's not so bad. I pulled Just 9. wait until 9G, buddy. <laughs> What's the big deal? <laughs> so, yeah, no, that yeah, was isn't a, that crazy to listen to that? It's a fantastic story. And doesn't it feel like a million years ago? I it mean, sure does. The episode. Yeah. That, when was that actually? That was January nineteenth, twenty twenty. So a year. That's crazy. A year. That's not not yeah. uh, not that long ago when we first started this. Was it two thousand twenty? Yeah, I started the podcast in November wow. of twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's a uh, hundred episodes in a two years ago. Then uh, almost two years. Yeah, two years. Year yeah, half. two years. Yeah, we're in twenty twenty two. Right. This twenty twenty two thing is screwing with. My I know, head right? Because. You know, one year we just lost because of COVID. I mean, you don't even bl- you blink it out. I think it was most of 2020. So, <sighs> you know, last year was 21, and that flew by. Yeah. But, yeah, wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Two years ago, we started this adventure uh, together, yeah. and, and it's been uh, fantastic to have you on the show, Rob. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing Thanks. that. Thanks for uh, always inviting me back because uh, – I know when I don't get the invitation or the text message, hey, when are you going to join the next one? It's probably when I've worn out my uh, welcome here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to our listeners, uh, you and, and Roger and, and uh, even Kyle are, are definitely a part of the landscape here. So, yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. And, and you know, the, on our show, we're all about the journey of today's aviator, how they became pilots? What are the struggles they went through? What are the hurdles they had to overcome? Because when listening to these interviews of these fantastic, fantastic aviators that I've had the privilege to get on the show and, and have discussions with all of you, um, with them, you know, I've, I'm always amazed on how the stories are always the same, but unique. And one of my favorite interviews was with a captain that I had some flight training with. We were doing a simulator event for our recurrent training over at Legacy Airlines. We we met each other. We hit it off, had great conversation. And I thought, man, this guy's got a great voice for, for radio, for podcasting. Um, and his experiences were phenomenal. Tomcat driver, top gun school graduate. This guy 
if I would have met him 10 or 15, 20 years earlier, I would have been like, oh, my God, you're my hero, you know, because <laughs> that was everything that I thought was the tip of the spear. Um, and it was a privilege and an honor to speak with Captain Paul. From episode uh, 54, Tomcat's Top Gun and Recurrent Sims. Here's just a little bit about how Paul was telling us how he performed a single-engine approach and landing on the USS Independence. Will to win... These are the things that endure. <laughs> Is it? Coach, coach of the pack. Yeah, he says, you know. Okay, coach. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you ended up transitioning finally to the F-14. I mean, yeah. any aviator in since the turn of the century that grew up watching films, particular films, which I'm not going to even, you know, insult you by mentioning you know particular <laughs> tom cruise films but i mean that's right. i watched that movie did it, over did that a come thousand out in 1986 times. i think something like that yeah <laughs> so it did yeah, yeah i watched it a thousand times dreamt uh, you know sit there in my grandpa's uh chaise lounger with a a couple uh rolling pins and pretending i was a pilot and you know <laughs> i mean who hasn't gone through that experience well maybe there's a younger generation out there that maybe doesn't even know about that movie, but <laughs> as a pilot, there that's, is. so I gotta, I gotta ask you, you, you were on board an aircraft carrier. You were telling yeah. me that you were on the USS independence, had some yes. amazing stories to tell. You were in theater. Yeah. But you told me one story that blew my mind. Yeah, we were, we were, I, this was back in the like nineteen ninety the end of 1990 when Saddam first invaded Kuwait. So they sent our, our carrier uh, through the Straits of Hormuz, I think it is, or Hormuz. Anyway, to be kind of on station to take care of any, to, you know, kind of show the American flag and show our military presence out there in the Persian Gulf. So we're out there for 110 days straight. I mean, only in the Navy, if you're on an aircraft carrier, you, you tool around out in the middle of whatever, whatever big body of water, whether the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian, whatever ocean you're in. But normally, you know, you're out there maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks, and then you're going to get a, a port call. So everybody has a little R&R &R, um, to blow off some steam. But due to the, un, you know, due to a potential conflict, we were out there for 110 days straight. And it was, it was trying at times, um, you know, flying out there in the Persian Gulf. And a lot of times we would, you know, we had CNN or whatever. This is before CNN became fake news. I actually was trusted. <laughs> Sorry. You might want to edit that out. <laughs> no, 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 that's great Keep stuff it. right there. Keep it. <laughs> it's true. <Yeah. laughs> so we, we would like, in the Ray Room, we'd watch CNN because every day was different. Like, what's going on today? Oh, we're, we're still going out and flying CAP, Combat Air Patrol, and in these sectors because, you know, we just didn't know, is the war going to break out tomorrow? So yeah. we just kind of kept doing our thing and, um, and kept flying our missions. And there was one kind of mission we're out there flying, and, and it became kind of something that, you know, was more than uh, extraordinary. So anyway, we're out there flying. I forget what it was, a 2v2 against uh, my 
my section and, and a group of hornets or something. We're just out there practicing. And at the end of it, we're like, all right, it's time to recover, head back to the ship. So my wingman and I, he was a, a junior uh, pilot. So he was, at the, at the time, I had already spent two or three years, almost three years flying the F-14. So I had about 1,200 hours in it. So I was relatively experienced and going against a relatively inexperienced guy out there, out there dog fighting. So it's a neutral start. And then after a couple of turns, I was, I was on his tail and I was getting ready to gun him. So anyway, and then all of a sudden I had a compressor stall on my right engine. I'm like, I looked down at EGT, the TIT, whatever it was that it's going hot. So I'm like, Oh man. So I coordinated with my rear. We shut down the right engine and then, uh, I, you know, knocked off the dogfight, had my wingman join up on the right side. And I was like, all right, we went through the book and went through the procedures. And it was like, all right, if the engine cools down, you can try and relight it again. So we tried to relight it again. And immediately my wingman saw all this fuel coming out of the right side of my airplane, which in later on, we, we determined after maintenance looked at it was a uh, afterburner fuel pump that had ruptured. So all this gas was coming out the right side. We're like, well, that's not good. So I immediately shut it back down again and committed myself to, I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm bringing this thing aboard the ship, single engine. So it's one of those things that you always practice. And Tony, like we do, and Roger and Rob, I mean, you know, you get in the sim, you're always like, what's the worst thing? Well, one of them is a single engine. You know, it's like, all right, how do we operate if you're used to flying with two or three engines and now you're down to one? It's like, all right. Yeah. So kind of the it gets uh sporty at that point. So anyway, uh so I'm out there and and I, you know, I'm on one engine now. And I I uh I was able to, to kind of focus. And it's funny how when the for me at least, I think the adrenaline starts kicking in and everything kind of became crystal clear and you're actually your look your brain is able to look at the instruments and just instantly determine and you're you just stay way more on top of stuff like you're fully wide awake at yeah. that point you know that you've got something um that's critical and it it takes all of your attention to detail to try and solve this problem so i i remember that as being a distinct feeling in my head where i'm like wow this is like it's really, it, it was kicking in. So anyway, came, brought the airplane back, flew a, a really, you know, flew a nice pass, luckily. Um, okay, three wire and uh, rolling out in the wires. And, uh, and I hear a, uh, the radio, um, there's a, there's my call sign was Lance and the skipper of the ship, his call sign was gun train. So I, I hear uh, Lance 207 gun train. I'm like, <clears throat> That's the skipper of the ship. So I, I'm out, I'm in the wires on the, on the deck of the carrier. And I look up at the island. And I see this big kind of overweight, heavy set, you know, captain of the ship looking down at me. He's got the radio, the phone to his ear. I, I said, I keep the mic. I said, go ahead, sir. And he said, nice job, son. I was like, yes. <laughs> and then Tony, the instructor for our, our sim, he was the younger brother of the CEO of Gun Train that we had. Wow. Um, Talk yeah. about small world. Small world. Yes. No kidding. Last week, we're going through the sim, and he knew that I was a Navy guy and flew F-14. So he, his, I could see behind his you know, medical mask that his eyes started 
kind of widening. He's like, what ship were you on? Well, I was on the Independence. He's like, what year? He's like, oh, like 89 to 91. <laughs> Do you know my brother? And so I'm like, yeah. He was, he's like, I'm his younger brother. I'm, oh, that's where I recognize the name. Wow. Wow. So he was, yeah, it was, it was a, it brought that, and he loved that story. And, you know, so it's a, you know what? And we, it, it's kind of aviation is a small world. We've it, all heard it, that. Oh, it's, it so yeah, it is. Sure and is. I've been saying this and toting that line for 20 years since I, since I got into it. Yeah. Uh, it's a small world. You never yeah. know that, you know, yeah. it is insignificant as a moment can be that you think while you're in it, that flight attendant that just got pissed at you because you didn't listen to him or her could be your chief pilot in a few years. I mean, completely yeah. yep. different, you know, same field, but different, uh, yeah. you know, section of it, different department, yeah. but you never know. You don't burn bridges in this industry. Yes. And it's moments like that where you really see this, uh, industry through a monocle. It's like, Oh man, that's, Really tiny, yeah. really sharp, and what a small. And that world. was thirty years ago. So yeah. you know the whole burning, don't burn bridges. Where you, you know, it's not just like from a couple years ago. You never know when. Yeah. You might run into somebody, no matter how long your aviation career might be. Yeah, can you imagine? That's a good story. Uh, good job, son. <laughs> oh man that's coming down from basically you know the earthly god of the navy you know that's the captain of the ship i mean he is like the man you know so to get that you know immediately raining down you know this you know earthly godly voice coming over the radio from the from the you know the bridge you know that that that's that's uh it's got to make you feel good you know yeah, I mean, you already know all ha- eyes are on you. You know, this oh, is yeah. an emergency situation on a ship. Everyone's on, you know, clear the deck. Here comes an emergency aircraft, and everyone's watching the cameras. But to to know that the uh, HMFIC is looking down on you and yep. gives you that vote of confidence. Oh, amazing! And an amazing yeah, storyteller, yeah, you know, Captain totally. Paul. Thank you so much from from uh, Flight Fifty Four. Uh, if you haven't heard it, go back check it out. You know, episode, this is episode 100 of the Squawk Ident podcast. We have only a few left of these uh, fantastic flashback clips. One of my favorite, and I think I, I have to say all of us here at Squawk Ident feel that this is one of our favorites. It's a little bit lighter side of the interview process. We interviewed a captain whose claim to fame started years ago on this website called The YouTubes. I don't know if you've heard of it. The YouTubes, yeah, and he talks about how he and the uh, the chief over there, uh, Louis, uh, have started this airline called Speed Tape Air, and we were able to to get him on the show. It was one of the. I mean, we had the most yeah, fun it was, laughing. It was an entertaining one. I like this one. Uh, oh, and and to meet uh, Bozo uh, online, at least, uh, was was a really tr- uh, was a real treat. Yeah. And here is just a just a little clip from Flight 59, the Puppet Master. Please. 
please take me to your show. Oh. I can be a character like Bubba J. Please. <laughs> well, you are quite the character, Captain, let me tell you. Oh, thank you. Yes. And it, so you mentioned you, you live in a suitcase. Any preference on uh, the name brand quality of, of establishment that you have for your mobile home? I'm glad home? you asked that. I'm glad you asked because what Bozo keeps me in is his original case that he bought over almost 10 years ago now. Oh, get out. Yeah. And it's still around? It's still around. So look, it's a luggage works, right? Oh, they last forever. They last forever. So you ask them about brands and things. Luggage works, if you want durability and longevity, luggage works. So man, that travel pro interior is plush. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. like it's like Egyptian cotton. You know, but I, what I don't like travel about pro. the travel pro is that the wheels, they they don't use bearings. Uh, at least on the travel pros that I've ever owned, they use just a, a metal shaft with a plastic or rubber grommet on these wheels. And oh, you, know, you, the you got to have the bearing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got to put the ABEC five bearings in the luggage works. So that the thing just glides across the concourse. You know what I yeah. mean? It's like, you're just barely pushing it. It's, yeah. it's going, you know, which ones I, I think in the 10 years we changed out the wheels once. <laughs> well, you know, I, and I meant to, to mention that, you know, years of being based in and out of Chicago, you know, pulling my luggage works bag through the snow and everything, I was going through bearings twice a year on my bag, um, which is one of the main reasons I went to luggage works, but that and the fact that the thing is a tank with its exterior metal frame. Well, the bearings kept getting rusted out because I, you know, wouldn't take it all apart after pulling the bag through snow. So I decided to go with ceramic bearings. So you can order ceramic bearings online and they have a tendency to not decay and rust out as much as the traditional metal or stainless steel bearing. So just a, a little tidbit for those listeners out there that may be dealing with these kind of issues. If you buy a overnight bag, spend the money, get a good one. The luggage works brand is a great brand. I actually have a strong bags. A strong bag is a great, uh, brand of, of suitcases as well. It has a aluminum interior that's covered with fabric. So there's no frame on the outside. It's a little less uh, tank looking um, and a little lighter, but the same with the wheels, with the bearings. And I haven't had a need to replace the bearings yet, but if I do, uh, I'll go with the ceramic ones instead. So yeah, food for thought. Yeah. Yeah. Now he finally swapped them out like three years ago. The ride got so much smoother with the new wheels. Wow. I was going to say, if for you, Captain, uh, it's probably like a mobile home for you, isn't it? You live in oh, that yeah, thing, yeah. you're getting pulled around all the time, you know, and, and then if you send the thing in to get refurbished, it's like getting a whole new interior, you know, redone. It is. It it's like it's living LED in a mobile lighting. home when your friend keeps dumping dirty laundry on your couch. <laughs> what it is. That might be a little tough. To have so to. we got a system going here. Clean clothes go in the main bag. Dirty clothes go in the side pockets. If the side uh, pockets fill up, they got to use the other exterior pockets before they come inside. So I guess you can only go about four days before you have to like trade everything out again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Four, okay. Four, four days or four five. Days. We can stretch it to five. Okay. I'm not an unreasonable puppet. <laughs> you know, we can stretch it to five, but after five, he's paying the damn money to go get coin slotted whatever laundry machine they got. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 God forbid you get extended or, you know, uh, stranded at your last overnight. Then you got to go five or six days. Oh man. Well, you know, you got the people who do the inside out underwear stuff and I don't understand that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, forward to backwards, and then inside out, yes. forward, and inside out, backwards. Yes. That's four days. Yeah. Why would you four do that? Days. That's what coffee machines are for. <laughs> Seriously. You know, it's hard to do now because the hotels got smart and they no longer have coffee makers with the basket, you know, and the filter and everything. Now they got these little Krups cups or these little, you know, fancy mm-hmm. Nespresso ones. And, and so you, it's kind of hard yeah. to put your dirty drawers in there just to give them a good steam. Learn to adapt. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you know, you can shove them in there. <laughs> just shove them in there. Yeah, just get them in there. Where there's a will, there's a way, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I heard that, I, I can't tell you, I don't think I had coffee out of a hotel room for months. <laughs> I was in the military, I learned to, to fold my shirts into like little section squares. So I'm sure yeah. a piece of underwear, if you fold it correctly, you can get that thing perfect. Yeah. Also, brews a pretty good cup of coffee. I'm sure now I'm going to get some feedback about this topic. So uh, let's move on. Oh, it's one of the hot button ones. <laughs> Oh my God! That was Captain Roger Victor, ladies and gentlemen. From man, he's hilarious, man. We had, I, I think we were even Roger was dying, crying <laughs> listening <laughs> to that. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, oh, that man. was a good one. So not every episode has always been so you know lighthearted and fun and tongue in cheek and laughing. And some episodes, I'm very very proud to say, have been nothing less than very informative. We were approached by a gentleman, uh, Mr. David W., who reached out and said, hey, I'd love to be on your show and talk about the Human Intervention Motivation Study Program for alcohol abuse or the HIMSS program that is designed for aviation, for pilots. You don't have to be an airline pilot to be part of the HIMSS program. It is there to help you with drug and alcohol problems. And he went through the program and he wanted to tell his story to maybe reach out and spread the word and maybe help one, just one person. I was so moved by this that we had him on the show right away. And he joined us from Eagleville, Tennessee, and he told us his story and how the HIMSS program saved his life. This is from Flight 61 entitled Realities of Recovery. This the six months check. We did ours in the sim. We did one with a check airman and then we did one with the, uh, in the sim. And I was paired up with a gentleman who was also a drinker. And we uh, we stayed at the hotel at the uh, I call the home, Homeboy Suites there in Dallas, Texas. And the, <laughs> home, the Homeboy Suites has they got free. They got free drinks from five to seven every day, oh, Monday yeah. through Thursday. And that was our warm up: two hours of drinking, then dinner, you know, and and then because uh, we didn't have to study for recurrent back then. Man, we were in an airplane for so long; you just yeah. did it, right? Yeah. Well, I went to the sim the next morning, hammered. All right, I was. I made him drive. I couldn't drive. I was I was so hungover and so drunk I couldn't drive. Hmm. I went into that check ride. We had, we did it back then with the oral first and then to get into sim. Yeah, I passed that check ride into oral with flying colors like it was nothing. Now think about what that did to my alcoholic brain. Oh boy, it's another step 
See, yeah. you were so bad. You shouldn't even been walked out of the room, but you still did it. You still went out there and flew a perfect yeah. check ride. Yeah. The instructor told me, he goes, that's one of the best check rides I've ever seen. Oh boy. So I said, Oh no. And we drove back. We were done at noon. Guess where we went? Go to the celebrate. bar. Right yeah. To the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And so fast forward about a week and a half, I went back to work. I met up with a friend of mine in a hotel uh, in New York. We drank all night. The next morning I wake up like I'm calling sick. That's what I said to myself. I'm going to call sick. And some, and some, something in my head said, no, man, just get up and take a shower. You'll be okay. So I got up and took a shower. I got out of the shower, man. I feel like crap. No, man, tell you what, why don't you go ahead and shave and brush your teeth, pop in a mint, tell you feel. So I shaved. I did all that. And no, I think I should just call sick. And then, then it said again, hey, why don't you put your uniform on? You'll be okay. You've done this a million times. So I put my uniform on, got my stuff, walked out of the front the door, walked down, got into the elevator, went downstairs to the lobby. As I was walking out of the elevator, I tripped over the stairs and I tripped over nothing in the elevators and almost fell down like a drunk because oh. I was. I was drunk. Oh. I turned around, got back in the elevator, called sick. Scared to death that somebody had seen me because that, that lobby was full of pilots. So I went and hid in my room for about uh, two hours. And uh, what any alcoholic does, I went and found the bar. I sat there all day. And then I I came home petrified that somebody had seen me. I was going to get caught. Somebody, and I had this, the one thing that was missing from my life showed up. God showed up for me. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm either going to kill myself because I was, I was to the point of, I was suicidal and, you know, I was thinking about it. So you're suicidal if you even think about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't do this anymore. And I had a good friend of mine that had went to the hymns program at the fractional and he was working for a legacy carrier now. And he had been talking to me for about a year and a half about going to get help. He knew I needed help. He's an alcoholic. I couldn't bullshit him. I couldn't yeah. get anything over on him. Yeah. And I called him up and sat in my bathroom one night and said, I can't do this anymore, Michael. I need help. He goes, great. Stay on the line. I call you. He goes, great. I'll call you back in 20 minutes. 20 minutes later, he had me a bed in a rehab center in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Thank and God I for your friend. I, yeah. yeah. Cause he's, he, he's really in touch with the hymns program. And, uh, so my wife and I jumped in the car. <laughs> I, I can laugh about this now, but I had a, a nine pack of uh, pints, you know, those, those pints in the aluminum cans. Yeah. And I had a half a bottle of vodka and I took it with me and drank it on the way to Knoxville. <laughs> One last hurrah. <laughs> well, we're going to do this. Might as well go out swinging. Yeah, that's it. My, <laughs> go down swing. You know, my last beer, my, my last beer was sitting in the, in our in our truck. My wife is sitting over there outside smoking a cigarette with the uh, the attendee that was going to check me in, waiting on me to finish my beers. And that was my last beer. So as I as I walked into rehab, uh, and was there for thirty days, you know. But wow. 
Yeah. That that was what that's what that that's how, that's how the, the the drinking went for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one story that that's my story. That's how I that's that's how I, I just couldn't do it. And oh, and I mentioned God because that's what. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And the the rehab, the fact that. You mentioned you said, "Well, I, I just I found God, and that was it." And I just said, "That's it. I need help." And you reached out to the right person. You know, thank goodness for that. Um, well, let's like, it's not really. I didn't really find God because I wasn't looking. I wasn't looking for God. Is that I had nowhere else. I, I just I I was just standing there, totally lost, totally miserable, totally you know didn't know what to do, and. I felt the presence of, of, of something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some people, you know, God is not, not their thing. That's fine. It was something other right. than myself. Mm-hmm. And like, and it's a, but he is a big part of my recovery now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was just a nudge, you know, the nudge to get me going there. So, and it, it was amazing though. It was an amazing feeling. It, even that, I can still remember the whole thing of standing there. So when I said, I need help. It's just like a lot of things is melted away immediately. Is that yeah. almost like, uh, and I've heard people say this before, is that at yeah. that point, uh, when you admit that you need the help, does it feel like just tons of weight are now lifted from your shoulders because you've admitted? Is that the way it works? Yeah, well, you, you, don't, you don't have to live the lie anymore. Yeah, the you, lie. You don't, have to, you don't have to lie to yourself. You don't have to lie. I never had to lie to my wife. Uh, my parents or my friends, they all knew I was a drinker. Uh, yeah. Right. But I, it's the fact of lying to myself that I had this, that yeah. I could control this. You know, the fact that I am, I am completely and totally 100% incapable of controlling my alcohol consumption. Yeah. 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 You know, I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to alcohol because once I have one, I want it all. Yeah. Cause that, that was, that's my problem is, uh, some, some, you know, uh, most companies have the employee assistance program you know, that, that you can yeah, call. EAP, sure. EAP, right. Yeah. Well, I called the EAP five times, and each time they told me that I might be an alcoholic, and I kept saying, oh, you guys are full of crap. You know, and the one time the EAP was right, this, this older lady, really sweet woman, said, David, she goes, I want you to do this. I want you to get eight minis out of the airplane. I told her all about where I got my liquor on the road. Mm-hmm. I didn't get all from the, on the road for the airplane. I bought a lot of it myself too, but you know, but there, yeah, goes, there was a free opportunity right there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it said, uh, geez, I want you to drink five of them and leave three of them in your bag tonight and call me back when you leave them in there. Well, I tried that four times and I always drink all eight of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, gotcha. could, you couldn't, and, yeah, you couldn't stop. Yeah. And yeah. It, right. But the thing, that's one thing I would stress with, with the employee assistance program, the people you talk to there, they don't know anything about the HEMS program. Okay. And if, and, and they can steer you down the wrong path and they're trying to do good. They're not bad people. I'm not talking down about the AP program whatsoever. Is that they're not HEMS trained. And they really could lead you down the wrong path. That's why the HIMSS program is there. Why the, the union is there. So let's talk a little bit about the HIMSS program. You know, we've mentioned yeah. it before on the show. We've, we've had 
uh, a hymns director on the show. If you go back and listen, right. uh, as a, an episode called, uh, a journey of giving back a uh, wonderful episode. I learned a lot at that interview, um, about hymns, the human intervention motivation study, uh, is specifically for commercial pilots and coordinates the identification, the treatment and the return to the cockpit for impaired aviators. That's an amazing well, you know, story, man. Yeah, I can't believe even listening to that again. Yeah, you know, a, a year and a half later, I can't believe just how candid. Yeah, he was with us, David. Um, yeah, David. David has reached out multiple times since then. He's doing great. Uh, he's good. he's seven forty seven fo for a big cargo yeah. company. Um, he's turned his life around and yeah. he shared his story with us. And if you listen to the whole entire episode, he, he says it without reservation of what happened to him, what mm-hmm. he went through, what he put others through in an effort to save another, to save a pilot, to save their certificate, to save yeah. a life. Um, and his honesty was intoxicating and yeah. i am so honored <laughs> good that choice he, of words too <laughs> he, he... i probably shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> no but in seriousness uh you know it takes a lot of courage to uh you know to to get on a platform like a podcast and tell your story and um and obviously it's in the interest to uh, help other pilots you know, who may be dealing with the same, um, set of circumstances and, um, you know, you know, I wish him all the best and, you know, sounds like he's, uh, turned his life around and definitely on the, uh, the right path. And, uh, yeah. so it's good to hear that he's still doing well. Yeah, very, very much. So, um, and, and you know, we've had these serious shows, but we've also had shows that really highlight what we are all about here. At Squawk Ident. We are about spreading the word about what it's like to be a professional airline pilot, to be a professional commercial pilot, to be a professional uh, jet pilot, whatever it is. And I, all the things that I wish I knew when I was first starting in this industry, when I, I was putzing around in a Cessna 172 around the, uh, the Arizona skies, you know, learning how to fly. And I just had this dream of being an airline pilot that I've had since I was a little kid. And, and I was making that reality come true, but I really didn't understand the, the gravity of, of what it took to be an airline pilot and, and the, really the realities of the days in and days out of, of flying. And it really all comes down to who is your mentor? Who is your leader? Who is your teacher? Who is your instructor? Um, they're they don't necessarily need to be all the same person. Right. And I met an individual flying on the line out here at Legacy Airlines. We, we met once uh, flying, and then months later, we ended up doing a recurrent training session together. Um, that's when we really kind of got to know each other. And I've flown with him a handful of times since then. He is what I would consider a friend, a dear friend. Um, he is an amazing person. I kind of look at him as my mentor in a way. Um, he, he's had a long, fruitful career in aviation, both in the Navy and at Legacy Airlines. 
And he really is all about giving back. And his passion for giving back, for being a mentor, has inspired me to try to give back as well. Um, We've had him on the show three times now. And who I'm talking about is Captain Elmore. Now, Captain Elmore has done some fantastic things for his community, for our community. Um, Currently, he is back in training for his Ironman uh, training cycle. And oh, that training, so... not, not the uh, <laughs> work training. <laughs> yeah, like physical training. The real training. <laughs> so proud of him. Um, he's coming up on, I think it's his 60th birthday coming up. Um, Amazing. So, yeah. Amazing. So proud of Kevin. Um, this is from Flight 73. It was the second time he was on the show. And he, I asked him a few questions about leadership and giving back, and how important that was to him. Let's listen in. You were telling me last night that you think everyone who has the ability should mentor. Why do you feel that way? I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's the only way you can influence the future. You can go back and you can grab however many people you can grab and show them, not just in aviation, but in life, what it takes to be successful, what, what, what they need, what skill set they need to, to be what they want to be. Uh, I have a young lady that's um, working in a hospital, and I think she's in Utah, and she sent me a, a private message about getting into the military uh, physician's assistant program. And I said, oh my gosh, you'd be a great candidate. You were a water polo player in high school. You played water polo in college. You've been working in the health industry uh, for many years now. Be a perfect candidate. So I wrote her a letter of recommendation um, to uh, submit to the Air Force. Mm -hmm. All she needed to do was get accepted into a PA program which she since has done that. So she's going to go get her PA degree on the Air Force dime and become a uh, second lieutenant, or actually I think she goes in as a captain in the Air Force. Nice. And I get a chance to pin her her captain's bars on and make her a commissioned officer in the Air Force. And so that feeling, that ability to help people matriculate and become productive citizens. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I think everybody should do it. It's, it's an incredible sense of pride and it makes you, it just, it's a great sense of accomplishment when you can go in and and do that and influence young, the younger generation. Yeah. And and I, I too feel very similarly about mentoring. Um, I can't stress enough the level of pride when I get a message from someone saying that they've made their next accomplishment, they've set their next goal and they're moving forward. It's, it's a wonderful place to be. And, and I absolutely agree that mentoring I think is crucial. We should be focused on that more than we are. uh, I think, especially now, this is the time and this show really 
has been my way to get the word out to say, look, if you, if you really want to do this because of the thrill of the polyester and the uniform, don't do it. Right. And that's how I try to weed out those that are coming into it for the wrong reason. But if you have a passion and you're not going to let no, the first couple of times dissuade sway you from this career, then I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. let's talk. Well, even, you know, look at the, when, when I talk to young, particularly young kids in uh, like say elementary school, you know, one of the first things they ask, cause they always ask the question, how much money do you make? <laughs> you, you should never, I don't think that you should get into this profession for the money. I mean, as you know, it's been kind of a up and down, a cyclic uh, journey as far as uh, pay and and aviation career. And I wouldn't broadcast this publicly except for on your podcast. But really, when you look at this job, it's, it's, um, I, I kind of compare it to a professional athlete. We are doing something that we love to do. At least you should be in love with what you do. You really wouldn't have to pay me a lot to do it. I just, I love the job that much. And so it's, it's like an athlete, you know, you, you love playing that sport and you do it for the love of the game. And that's what I think people should remember when they come into aviation is do it for because you love it yeah. not because you want to get rich doing it because you're probably not going to get rich doing it. Right. Well, Captain Elmer is, is quite an amazing, uh, individual, um, you know, high caliber pilot, high caliber athlete, high caliber individual, you know, just one of those guys that, um, you know, definitely had worked hard at what he does and, and his, you know, his personality and his career and his achievements as an athlete show it, you know, so hats off to him. What a, he's in a, uh, you know, definitely a, one of the better interviews, I think, you know, out of the hundred <laughs> that, that, that we've done. And, um, you know, it's really awesome. And it always is awesome to listen to his stories. You know, he'd be a great guy to fly with cause you know, you'd never, never get bored listening to the stories and conversations uh, that you'd have together. Yeah. Yeah. That's from flight 73 leadership, mentorship, and being better. Uh, And yeah, just fantastic experience. Thanks again, uh, Kevin, for, for allowing me to interview you several times for the show. Um, The nine 11 tribute. I thought about putting clips from that on because we've done a nine 11 tribute uh, every year since, since the, Mm-hmm. The launch of Squawk Ident. I think last year's was very special, at least it was to me. Uh, we did six interviews of six captains, and we played them back on the on the show uh, when we were recording. And some of them had me in tears, yeah, uh, just because of the the sheer emotional gravity of having these professional adult pilots who experienced firsthand being there. And what they went through in the years to follow, and and having that raw emotion come back up all these years later uh, was very moving. Uh, I chose not to put any clips on this episode because we are running long today and and yeah. short on time. And and but I highly recommend that uh, the nine eleven show 
Um, the last clip I want to play is is one of my favorites because it deals with what we're trying to accomplish here. As we were speaking on the onset of this episode, we were giving examples of how a recent experience with wind shear and weather events and uh, and how we handled them and using the threat and error model, you, why we act, reacted the way we did and, and all these things. It's all here to try to spread the information and make us all better. And, and that's really the goal. So on this last clip from Flight 86, entitled Super Critical Coverage, we interviewed a really cool guy. Pete Tenderenda was more than uh, happy to be on the show, and I was just so grateful that he, that he was uh, able to join us. Uh, I first met Pete when we were flying together. Uh, he was my FO over at Sandpiper on a trip. We really hit it off. He's just a really cool guy, real laid back. And he tells a story of an emergency situation that he had over at Sandpiper and how he handled it. And it really does top off the, an explanation of what we're doing here on the show, which is to inform so that we can all make better choices. Here's a clip from Flight 86. What have you had at, at, at um, Sandpiper? Anything that happened at Sandpiper that? Uh, yeah, we had a uh, rapid decompression, actually. Really? Uh, at uh, Flight Level 280. Yeah, coming into Miami. No um, kidding. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I mean, I've realized that things you know, when something goes wrong, things don't have to happen quickly. You don't have to do, you know, there's not a whole lot in an airplane or in a, in a jet that you have to do quickly besides right. putting your mask on in a rapid decompression, you know, exactly. or, an explosive, or in, in an explosive decompression, right. you know? And, uh, but anyways, yeah. So yeah, I had a, uh, rapid decompression coming into, uh, Miami. We were doing a longer flight. I think it was, uh, somewhere in Ohio back to Miami. Um, you know, our, one of our longer flights and, uh, it was a great time. We were having a great time. Um, the captain and I were, uh, were, you know, getting along very well and everything was set up. And so, yeah, we were flying from Cleveland, I believe back to Miami. Uh, we just started the arrival into around Norman beach and at two eight Oh, uh, the captain realized, the uh, highly arrival. <laughs> yeah. Something, something like that. Yeah. One of those, uh, highly, highly seven, what a six, whatever it is now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, captain, you know, he's, uh, he's, he started freaking out and he's well, not freaking out, but he started, uh, you know, pointing towards the ICAS and, uh, we see that the, uh, cabin pressure is rising and, um, He's, he's, he immediately jumps into action, you know, um, and it's rising rapidly and we're losing, you know, pressurization. And, uh, he, the first thing he said, he goes, uh, he goes, I've seen this in, in, in training. I've seen this in training, you know, and goes, <laughs> grabs his mask, you know, puts it on. And, and, and there we go. We started our, uh, you know, memory items, you know, oxygen mask on crew. On 100%. Uh, yeah. On hundred percent communication established, you know, rapid descent as required, you know? And, uh, so anyways, yeah, we, we, uh, we initiated a, uh, a, uh, rapid descent and, uh, or emergency descent as required. That's what it's called. Emergency descent. 
and uh, declared an emergency. It wasn't explosive. It was just rapid. Um, and he was pretty excited and that, which got me excited. Um, you know, I mean, the first thing we do is we, we, we adjust our seats. We're, you know, we're sitting forward, you know, cause we're, you know, we're sitting back, relaxed, you're, cruising, you know, you're in cruise you, mode. You adjust. Yeah. Yeah. You're in cruise mode. So, uh, so we adjust our seats. We're on our way down. And I remember, you know, he's breathing really hard, you know, and it was, we established crew communication. We could hear each other and I could hear him just breathing, you know, really heavy. And, and, and I remember looking over at him in our, you know, we're in our descent, you know, we're bouncing along, you know, getting down, you know, speed brakes are out and, uh, gears down and all that. And, uh, we're bouncing along. He's breathing really heavy. He's, you know, he's hand flying it, you know? And I just, I just looked over at him, just kind of tapped his shoulder. I said, Hey, I go, you all right, man. And he looks over at me. He's like, yeah, I go, all right. And we fist pounded. And then we continued. (laughs) 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 And uh, yeah, I just had to slow him down to slow myself down, you know, but uh, we, we, yeah, we descended, uh, got to, uh, you know, we were shooting for 10. We blew through 10. I said, okay, we're going to level at eight. Um, And we leveled at eight. Uh, Oh, and he was telling me to drop the mask. So in the Embraer 140, 145, uh, you know, the masks will deploy, I think at, 14 or 15,000 feet, yeah. 14. Yeah. Uh, and the cabin rate never got that high, but he was saying masks, 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 you know, through our oxygen masks. And, uh, I was like, what would you like me to do? And he says, drop the masks, you know, and I'm, I thought about it for a second and, uh, I realized that, you know, I don't know if we're going to have an explosive decompression or if it's going to go any, or if it's going to continue to climb. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Continue to climb. I don't know what's going to happen. He's asking for it. Uh, it will deploy automatically. But I said, okay. I mean, this is all happened in a matter of two seconds. Sure. Thought about yeah. it. He asked yeah. for it. Thought about it, and then boom, just dropped the mask. You know. So yeah. Uh, but yeah. So that was that. We landed, and uh, that was it. <laughs> you know, we we thanked Ooh. everybody. You know, on board. Yeah, yeah. We got down. Everything was good. Declared emergency and landed. And then, uh, yeah, they discovered it was uh, leaking somewhere around the um, PCA, uh, uh, yeah. wherever they hook up, you know, preconditioned air. So, uh, you, you brought something to light that we, uh, we talk about in training all the time when you were in the middle of the emergency and you were in your emergency descent and, you know, you said you brought your seat up, you're bouncing along and you can hear your, your captain over there just breathing, breathing, breathing. And, you know, you tapped them on the shoulder and you looked at him and you were like, are you okay? And he looked at you and he went, yeah. And then you fist bump. You know, that, that's, that's, that's something that is, is awesome. You know, we talk about that all the time. You know, you get, sometimes you get so caught up in the moment and, you know, you, um, you get like, uh, you know, what do they call it? Tunnel focus, tunnel is that what it's called? Tunnel vision. Tunnel, yeah, vision, tunnel vision, right? And you're just focused on doing, you know, doing the right thing perfectly and you forget about everything else. And it happens to everybody. Right. And you just tapping them on the shoulder kind of brings them back to, hey, we're good. You know, the, your scan is out here now where everybody's in the in the green, we call it. And, uh, you know, we're outside of the yellow. And I, it didn't sound like you guys ever got in the red, which is awesome. No which is a term that we use uh, in training red being you're, you're completely clueless to what's going on. Yellow oh. being like, you're, you're kind of 
you're kind of, you know, tunnel vision or you're kind of, uh, you know, a little outside of your <laughs> comfort zone and the green meaning, Hey, you're with it. You're dialed in. We're doing everything properly. You know, that's a great way to bring somebody back into the green. Yeah. That was cool, man. That was a great that's story. A, that's a wonderful story. <laughs> great job, Pete. I mean, wow. talk about exactly exactly what we're talking about here sharing experiences yeah. so that we could learn from them we can we can put that in the back of our minds and if that similar experience ever happens to us as we heard the story i remember pete telling me that story it'll help focus your direction so that you can have the safest possible outcome yeah and we get to share these stories at altitude in a pressurized hollow tube, traveling 500 miles an hour, six miles over the surface of the earth all the time. That's what we talk about on the flight deck when we're not specifically doing a task. We share stories. We learn from them. It makes us better pilots. It makes us better aviators. It makes us better people because we hear the stories. We can be compassionate about others' experiences, and we can make ourselves better because we'll put more tools in our arsenal of tools. And when we hear stories like this from Pete, I mean, these are the highlights for me. This is yeah. what it's all about. Definitely. What a great story uh, Pete shared with us. Is, is he about to flow to uh, Legacy? Do you know? Well, when we were doing the podcast with him uh, months ago, he was getting ready to upgrade. Oh, okay. So not quite yet. Uh, I did have a... a chance to hang out with uh, one of our former guests, Nathan Day, mm-hmm. uh, from, from a podcast uh, a few ago. Yep. Uh, Nathan and I got to hang out in Grand Rapids. I was on a layover in Grand Rapids, and that's where he lives, and I reached out to him. So we got together on uh, New Year's, actually. Uh, and he's in class right now, 7-3 FO, nice. over at Legacy Airlines. Um, so yeah, you know, it's kind of nice to have these um, pilots that we've had on the show and and get to follow their journey real time. (laughs) This is actually very, very amazing. Well, I'm very excited, Rob, because season four is looking to be really just jam-packed with interviews. I have a few interviews that are lined up for the following uh, weeks and months. Um, Hopefully, uh, we can get some more podcasts out with a little bit more regularity. I know things have been crazy with schedules right now. I don't see that it's changing, but uh, hopefully we can keep this ball rolling because I really do have a fantastic time producing these shows. And you do a really good job at it. Keep up the good work. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, It's time to put in another 100 episodes and and, um, get some more stories and some more interviews out there and... and, um, share the excitement we have about podcasting and and aviation. Yeah. And thank you, Rob, for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to share this time with you. Uh, Season four, you know, like we mentioned, has some exciting interviews coming up, Mm -hmm. some exciting shows. Um, What's the rest of the week looking for you, Rob? Well, I got a a trip starting tomorrow. Uh, As usual, I had to uh, back some trips up back to back to make time for the kids volleyball season. So we have a volleyball tournament starting on Saturday. Uh, so Saturday, Sunday, and thankfully it's local. So uh, and we don't have to travel too far for it. But um, got a three-day trip coming up starting tomorrow. 
and uh, volleyball on the weekend. And then I get Monday off and then head right back out for another three-day trip starting on Tuesday. Um, so that's what's going on, personal life and work life. Um, other than that, <laughs> not too much. Just standard, you know, husband, daddy, uh, uh, you know, workload stuff here at home with laundry and cleaning the house and <laughs> car maintenance yeah. and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been doing too. Uh, I recently uh, bought and sold a few vehicles, and uh, I'm working on one now. Cool. Uh, got a, a 2007 Toyota FJ Cruiser that needs a little bit of work, and I've been <laughs> going back and forth to the dealer. They know me by name at the dealer for at the parts yeah. department. Um, luckily, I do all the work myself, and, yeah. and you know, thank, Save a lot of thank money God that, that uh, cool. yeah, you know, my I'm a bit of a mechanic i've been turning wrenches for my dad's auto repair shop since i was a little kid and so luckily i have the knowledge and the experience uh, and skill set to do the work so yeah um that's what i've been working on too it's been taking up quite a bit of time but uh soon uh, i'll have that uh three inch lift kit new suspension and a new master brake cylinder in and uh that car will be complete cool. and you know you what should, I you do, should with do a uh kind of kind of like our uh, our buddy uh, is it john john gruber Oh, the YouTube or the Instagram, uh, yeah, yeah, Lancer Legacy, yeah, yeah. Should do well, you know. Time. I thought about that, but you know that I've been in such a rush to kind of get stuff done yeah. that I haven't set up cameras and things. Oh, um, but I'll definitely just hold I'll, your iPhone there and do it. That'll be fine. Take a couple <laughs> I, videos yeah, and put them together. I think I will. Uh, you know, at least from here on out, uh, do a little bit of progress. Maybe I'll have to start a on my personal Instagram page. Yeah, it's, uh, at at Aviator Tony. There you go uh, on Instagram. Uh, but anyway, I just want to say thanks again for joining us uh, for the last 100 episodes. And we look forward to having everyone join us on this journey as we continue forward. Please help us by sharing this podcast online and with your friends. Be sure to subscribe or follow the Squawk Ident podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We also love receiving listener feedback. You can send us an email or even audio feedback via our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There you'll find audio archives, photos from the flight line, guestbook photo tab, or Squawk Ident Pilot Shop, where you can find an assortment of t-shirts, hats, mugs, and much, much more. Small proceeds from every sale goes towards helping to finance this podcast. You can also contribute financially to our program right from our homepage on the website. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us other under Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident Podcast. So one big final thank you to Rob D for joining us today. And thank you to you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. See ya. Bye, y'all. <laughs> Damn. Oh, yeah.
time ago. I wouldn't know anything about it. Do you know anything about planes? Do you know anything about planes? Can you fly this airplane and land it? No, not a chance. No, not a chance. No, 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 not a chance. Roger. Huh? Roger. Huh? Request vector. Over. What? Do you know anything about planes? Clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor?